Hi there. Welcome to Finding Space with Alex Tyson, the show that celebrates the everyday legends who put in the hard work to become who they want to be and live the life they want to live. For people who understand that when we practice compassion and find wisdom within ourselves, we find success and happiness. Join me in hearing amazing stories from everyday individuals who have found incredible personal and professional growth through varied and, at times, wild methods of self-improvement and self-responsibility. And through their unique perspectives and work, have gone on to better the lives of those around them. From nurturing health to growing your wealth or enjoying the present to crafting your future, no aspect of life is off topic. And hey guys, just a quick note that we recorded this podcast before we rebranded our company from iHealth Saunas to Found Space. So if you hear any references of iHealth Saunas, that's why. Today, I'm speaking with Lauren Lockman. Lauren Lockman is a world-renowned water fasting specialist. He's the founder of Tanglewood Wellness Center, the world's largest water fasting facility. Lauren has successfully fasted thousands of clients, helping them heal from type 2 diabetes, hypertension, cancerous tumors, arthritis, and a whole host of other typically chronic conditions and diseases. In this podcast, we talk about the role Western medicine has played in the ill health that plagues modern culture, what symptoms really are and how our body heals naturally, the process our body undergoes during fasting, the role autophagy plays in healing, the natural diet for humans, evolution, and a lot more. I fasted with Lauren last year for 30 days and 30 nights on water only at his facility in Costa Rica. And after experiencing the amazing benefits not only fasting had on me, but also eating the optimal diet of fruit and leafy greens, I was eager to have him on the podcast. My intention of this podcast is to showcase fasting and raw foods in a way that will hopefully inspire you to consider trying it yourself. It can be really challenging at times, but it is uh, by far the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. I now have a new level of health that I can experience and level of vitality that I can go forth with in the world and it's really beautiful to finally have that. And so I give you Lauren Lockman. Lauren, thanks for coming on the podcast, mate. It's an absolute pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Mm. Why is it uh, that it seems in culture, uh, in the global consciousness of the world, um, it seems that uh, we're making some mistakes in our health. And um, how far are we uh, as a global consciousness from experiencing true health at the moment? Unfortunately, we are, as, as, a, as a species, we're a long way from where we could be. Um, a long, long way. And is that just... Is that even our fault? <laughs> like, how's this happened? Well, you know, yes and no. As I think you know, I'm an advocate of taking 100% responsibility. We're not victims. Um, we, we wound up in this situation uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, it, it happened, I think, because, because of our culture, because of... Uh, the way we've evolved because of where we wound up living. We can talk about all those specific reasons, but, you know, I think the bottom line, Alex, is that the information is out there and not so many people are looking for it and not so many people, even if they stumble across it, recognize it. And I think there are various reasons for that. But one reason is that 
it looks so radical to most people that it's hard for people to wrap their head around it. Yeah, I've, um, you know, through my healing journey, I've just realizing every single day um, we're just, we, we seem to be very far from, from the truth, you know, and even people who are practicing, practicing good health, <laughs> right? Um, you know, I remember when I, right. when I stopped eating animals and I thought, wow, like this is, this is the path, you know, and God, little did I know right, exactly. the downside of, you know, cooked foods and overeating and all these things. And, um, the information's out there, but it's, it's, it's hard to find, you know, and it's hard to know what, like, what is truth, you know? And, um, well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, listen, you know, I'm not sure I agree with you that it's hard to find. I mean, today we can find anything if we look, but, but, but the truth is, as I said, I mean, it's, it seems so radical to most people that the first time most people stumble across it, they think this guy or whoever else might be espousing that information is crazy. Like, this is insane. There's no way this is really what's optimal. There's no way we should need to do this, or there's no way that whatever, you know, these things that, that we do could really be in our best interest because it just seems so far. It is so far. Well, or at least it's, it seems so far, perhaps, from the average person's experience that they have trouble imagining that it really is what's optimal. And I think that's the bottom line. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's so far from what we're brought up knowing and being told and practicing and experiencing. Um, And then, you know, I guess, you know, we can talk about what it is we're actually talking about, you know, fasting and cleansing the body and eating cleanly and we'll definitely get there. Um, oh, now you've given it away. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when, when we start doing that, we don't even necessarily feel great, right? Because our body has energy. No. Start to detox. That, that's, that's right. Ex- exactly. I mean, and this, this is also a confounding factor because of some, you know, a lot of people, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a story, which you may have heard me before, but I was London, England, uh, many years ago, probably 20 years ago. I was coming off the stage in a lecture hall, like a theater style, theater style lecture hall in a, in a university in London, England. And I just finished giving a two hour talk, two hours and 12 minutes as it happened, um, to uh, several hundred people. And a woman stopped me on the way up and she said, Lauren, that was great. But I tried fasting once and it didn't work for me. And I said, really, what happened? And she said, it made me sick. And this is the thing, you know, a lot of people don't understand this very basic piece. In fact, this keeps a lot of people really stuck um, experiencing a far lower level of health and vitality than they could. And what that piece is, is that they don't understand that the symptoms we experience throughout our lives are evidence that the body's cleansing and healing. And, you know, if, if you miss that piece somehow, and it's easy to understand how, because everything that we do in the name of heal, health and healing is based on, I mean, conventionally at least, is based on suppressing those symptoms without ever acknowledging, well, hang on, maybe the symptom's there for a reason. Maybe we shouldn't be suppressing it. Maybe we should be allowing it to the body to do whatever it needs to. But that's, I mean, how many people understand that? 
you know, honestly, even if we look at the raw food world, right, we'll get there too. Most people don't get that. They're still looking at ways to suppress symptoms. And, and that means that even those people who have uh, stumbled across, you know, somehow found their way to an optimal diet are still often doing things in order to suppress the very symptoms, the very evidence that the body is cleansing and healing. They're looking to stop that from happening. And they do. They can, there, there are many ways to suppress those symptoms, each of which ensures the body isn't able to do what it needs to do. You know, I feel like I feel like we have some programming within us sometimes that we almost don't even want to heal. You know, um, I haven't found in my own experience. Well, well, yeah, no, I think to a, to a certain extent you're right. I mean, this this is another piece that we have to overcome. Most of us, at some level, subconsciously, are manifesting a lower level of health than possible for a number of reasons. There's there's um, I don't know if you've ever studied the work around family systems, but People often have these contracts. They believe they have a contract with their family to basically not outdo. You know, so uh, people who come from families where there's specific types of issues, they'll, they'll wind up manifesting the same thing, even if they don't have to, even if they have the, the knowledge to surpass that. Because they, it's like somewhere deep inside, they believe they're, they're being disloyal to their family if they don't keep doing whatever it is that the family does. Um, but that keeps people stuck. So th- and this is just one more. And then there's the piece that simply says, well, I'm, maybe I'm not worthy at some level, right? This is a subconscious piece. But, you know, at some level, I'm not worthy of feeling and functioning better than this. Yeah, it's that programming we have to deal with. <laughs> um, you know, I've got a friend up here who uh, started eating fruits, soft leafy greens, uh, cured her cancer. Her eyes changed from green back to blue. <laughs> She's feeling amazing. And her family still tell her to eat real food. Real food. Oh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I mean, again, it's it's just so tragic what happens. I, I've I've seen the same kind of thing over and over again. Yeah. So, how did you get on the journey of um, of fasting yourself, and how did you start to kind of develop that advocacy for fasting and raw foods? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I don't I don't normally think about anything from a deterministic standpoint, but I but I really believe that. This was my path all along, and I just needed to discover it. And what happened for me was I got very sick at 23. I had, uh, you know, I'd grown up a fairly healthy kid, typical kid, but, you know, I mean, I had, you know, I had colds sometimes and probably had the flu once or twice, had the chicken pox as a kid, um, you know, all that stuff. But other than that, you know, I had, I was a healthy kid. I wasn't alert, I think. Everyone in my family was allergic to a particular drug, but other than that, you know, had no allergies, uh, was always pretty healthy, um, was a competitive swimmer since I was six years old. And, um, I, you know, I played other sports, although not particularly well. I wasn't, uh, I played baseball and soccer as a kid, but you know, I was one of those kids that they, they let on the team because they had to let everyone on the team. I wasn't really particularly good at those things. Um, but I was, you know, I was a reasonably healthy kid. And then I graduated from college and within about six months, 
realized how sick I was. I mean, it was actually, um, I realized one day that I was addicted to caffeine and I was still, I never really graduated from college. I mean, I've gotten my degree, but I was still going out partying, you know, four or five nights a week until two or three o'clock in the morning. And then waking up and dragging my, my butt into my office. You know, I had a job and was working commercial real estate, but I was exhausted all the time. And I was relying on caffeine to keep me awake. And so I think it was my fifth or sixth cup of coffee before lunch one day. And I thought to myself, I think I might have an addiction. And I wasn't willing to be addicted to anything. And so I decided that's it. I'm not drinking any more coffee. I like right there. No more. That's it. Cold turkey. And it didn't take me long to realize just how exhausted I was because I've been propping myself up with caffeine. And so um, yeah, I was later diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, chronic uh, systemic candida, uh, chronic sinusitis, and 57 allergies. And I had become allergic to virtually everything, fruits and vegetables, dust, pollen, mold, pretty much everything you can think of. Um, I spent the next three years I bought a house a year out of school and, you know, here I was with mortgage payments needing to work. Now, fortunately, I also uh, rented rooms out to other people, uh, other young professionals. And we were half a mile, you know, 10, 12 minute walk to the metro station uh, that went downtown. And so it was a pretty good spot. And, but I, you know, I, I, I kept working, but it was pretty difficult. And I actually wound up buying a house six, well, maybe, maybe eight blocks from my office, which allowed me to wake up half an hour before I needed to be there, get there on time. I would literally go down to my car. We had a structured parking garage and I would drive to work and I had a little battery powered alarm clock. And at lunchtime, I'd go sleep for an hour because I was exhausted by noon. And then I'd go back to my office and I'd work until five o'clock or six o'clock and I'd go home and I'd go to bed most of the time. I mean, I was, you know, I was, it was eating, but I was just barely able to stay awake to work. And that was my life for three years. And I, I was going to doctors. I mean, I went to a doctor and my doctor told me that most of what I was dealing with didn't exist because back then chronic fatigue syndrome wasn't considered real irritable bowel syndrome wasn't considered real. And most people, most doctors didn't recognize candida. Now today, these are all conditions that people recognize real. And I knew that there was something going on, but this doctor literally was telling me that there was nothing there. So I got antibiotics for the sinusitis, the sinus infections. Uh, he wanted to give me shots for all these allergies. And I thought, no, I'm like sitting down. I don't think I'm going to do that. Um, and after a year, I thought, you know, this guy, I'm, I'm worse than I started because I was suppressing my immune system with antibiotics. And so I thought, I'm going to go find somebody else. I didn't realize that. I just knew that I was worse than I, when I started. I found another doctor who did exactly the same thing. And I got worse again. And then I said, okay, I'm going to go find somebody else. And I tried a third doctor. And, you know, I, each time hearing that most of what I'm like, they said, just be careful what you eat. I, I mean, if I eat anything... I felt terrible with irritable bowel syndrome. So fluctuating between constipation and diarrhea, I mean, I was constantly bloated. I actually wound up buying, uh, well, or, yeah, buying new pants and shorts that were like an inch or two bigger than I needed 
and I had buttons sewn and I wore braces. I couldn't have anything tight around my waist because I was in so much discomfort all the time. And so after, you know, at the end of three years, I thought, I, you know, I realized at that point that it wasn't, it wasn't each doctor. I mean, all three doctors, the same thing. I thought, okay, medicine isn't going to help me. It's not helping me. It's making me worse. And that's when I decided that I needed to walk away and figure it out myself. And that was 34 years ago. I've never looked back. I've consumed zero medicine except for trauma. I've never seen a doctor. I've never gotten a checkup, except, I mean, I had to, uh, last year when we uh, refinanced this place to buy the place next door, uh, the bank required me to take a life insurance policy um, because this place depends on me. And that's the first time I've had a physical checkup of any kind. The doctors who did this, and there were two or three different ones, because I had all kinds of things they wanted to do. They were, they kept asking me, you're how old? Because they couldn't believe what they were seeing. And by the way, as I think you know, I'll be, I'll be turning 60 in just a couple months. And so and you found your way into eating fruits, right? What was that transition like? Yeah, I did. Well, you know, I started out, I mean, I had realized actually, I think as a teenager, uh, maybe at 18 or so, I realized that there was something about, it's funny, I started out uh, as a fisherman. We, my, my mother liked fishing, my uncle would like to fish, and so I got turned on to fishing. And I, I love being in nature. But um, we're having some power issues here, so hopefully we're able to keep on going. At least we're we're still recording. But um, I know I would go out with my uncle and sometimes with my mother as well. And I love sitting by the on the bank of a river, right in in nature all day. We'd be out there for several hours at a time catching fish. But at some point, it dawned on me that having a hook in their mouth probably wasn't all that pleasant experience. And I actually hated eating fish. Um, and so in fact, I would, I would t- tell my, my mother, tell my uncle, you know, I'm going to tell my mother I didn't catch anything. <laughs> I'm going to give you what I caught. Cause I think if I brought it home, we had to eat it. I didn't want to. Um, but so I think at some point I realized that I was going to become vegetarian, but I didn't quite feel ready until this happened. And so when this happened, I thought, okay, that's it. You know, the first step is I give up all animal products and I went vegan. And then, and and what happened was I was sort of, it occurred to me that like every other species on the planet, there must be a natural diet for the human body. And so my, you know, my first thought was what I need to do is work out for myself. What's the natural diet for, for the human body? And it quickly became obvious to me that it didn't include eating animals. When I looked at digestive physiology and anatomy, I could see we had completely different systems than the animals that normally eat meat. And, you know, of course, eating other animal products made no sense either. I mean, it worked. eating meat or eggs didn't make any sense. Obviously, dairy is for the infant of that species. 
I mean, you know, drinking drinking human milk didn't make any sense after a week. Why should we be drinking milk of another species, which was very specifically adapted to that species growth rate, etc. So I gave up all animal products and I stopped eating all processed foods because it occurred to me that processed food couldn't be natural. And I was looking for what was natural for my body. So I started eating only whole foods. Now I'm embarrassed to tell you that it took me several years to realize, and it took me overhearing a part of a conversation to realize that eating cooked food was also not natural. It seems completely obvious to me now. It probably seems obvious to you. It may not seem obvious to some people listening because we've just grown up doing it and it never even occurred to me. And in fact, you know, here I am trying to figure out what's optimal, what's natural to, for my body. I was at a health conference and I was walking down the sidewalk to go to a lecture and I passed by two people having a conversation. I just overheard one little piece of their conversation. One person said to the other one, raw food. And it's like a light bulb went off. I'm like, I'm cooking food. That's not natural. Animals in nature don't cook their food. And so I decided that's it. And I made the decision. This occurred, this conversation in late October, uh, it, 29 and a half years ago. And in the U.S., Thanksgiving is in late November. And I had already decided, committed to being at my sister's house for Thanksgiving. And I thought, it's going to be a little bit disruptive to, to try to eat raw, you know, with this big cooked family meal. And so I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start eating raw the day after Thanksgiving. And that's what I did. Um, so late November was my 29 year anniversary. I gave up cooked foods. I wish I could tell you I've never eaten cooked foods again. But the truth is there have been several times where I thought, I'll go ahead and try this or I'll try that. Uh, each time my body has said to me, you're an idiot. You should know better. Uh, why are you doing that? Um, you know, having gotten the body pretty clean doesn't feel very good. And it's, it's something that it's funny because um, as, as you know, well, uh, I run the world's largest dedicated water only fasting center in March, we'll celebrate, uh, next month, we'll celebrate 24 years. And I have taken many thousands of people through fasts, averaging 26 days on only water. And for those of you who haven't fallen over in shock and are still listening, um, yeah, that's, you know, it's, 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 I know, again, I, I'm sure we'll explore that, but because um, it sounds like a crazy thing to most people, it sounded crazy to me too. But we, again, we, we, can, we can come back to that. But, uh, yeah, so this, you know, for me, it was, uh, I made this, this choice and um, I ask people here all the time, you know, how many of you have had this experience? Most people think that, you know, maybe rice and beans and steamed vegetables, and you know, as long as they're getting all their, they think that's a pretty healthy diet. But what happens is anyone who's spent at least three or four weeks or more eating exclusively raw, especially if they eat the simple diet that you mentioned, which is the diet that I've been recommending now for 30 years, um, you know, ever since I started doing it myself, nearly 30 years, fruit and simple, you know, simple green salads or soft tender leaves. We eat rice and beans, you know, steamed vegetables, things that seem relatively healthy. We don't feel very good. 
And we don't feel very good for very good reasons that will often surprise many people. But cooking food both destroys nutrients and creates toxic compounds. There's a whole list of different toxic compounds created by cooking. And if that's surprising to people, you know, if you've ever looked at the course catalog at a culinary academy, there will usually be a whole series of courses called food chemistry. Because when we heat foods to the temperatures that we cook them at, we're actually creating chemical reactions. And so we're actually creating toxic compounds. And the result of that, there's, there's an interesting process. Leukocytes are white blood cells, right? And so I don't know if you've had a blood test since, since you left us here, but I hear from people all the time who say, my doctor says my white blood cells are too low. This is from my clients who have gotten their bodies cleaned who are eating well. And they'll say, my white blood cell count is too low. I said, well, that's fine. Um, it should be low. Right, the average person has far more leukocytes in their blood every day than is actually healthy. I mean, the healthy ranges are determined by doctors based on where the average people are. But we actually should have very few leukocytes. It's just that the average person who's eating cooked food five times a day, which is what the average person does, you know, they'll have some kind of snack at least and three meals a day. And that means five times a day, their body is experiencing something called digestive leukocytosis, where the body creates white blood cells uh, in the bone marrow and sends them to your digestive tract to help the body recover from the damage created by eating cooked food. And so to say it another way, the average body is reacting to cooked food every day, multiple times a day, as if it's been poisoned but only because it has. And is that the case with raw foods? No. Uh, this this re reaction only occurs in the presence of cooked food because cooking food creates these toxic compounds. And in fact, um, just over 100 years ago or so, there was a scientist who uh, named Paul Kutrykov who thought, well, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's a crazy thing, right? Scientists... And doctors will say, well, leukocytosis, right, which is the general term for the white blood cell creation that occurs whenever the body's been injured. So if you fall off your bike and skin your knee, if you um, injure your arm, you know, any kind of injury, your body creates white blood cells and sends them to that site. And they'll say, well, leukocytosis only happens in the event of an injury. In other words, our bodies are pretty intelligent. They're not going to waste energy creating and marshalling leukocytes for no reason. But they'll say, leukocytosis hap only happens in the event of an injury, except for digestive leukocytosis. And that happens for no reason. <laughs> I mean, wait a second, hang on. Why would the body do this for no reason? It doesn't. That never happens, right? It's only happening for, for some very specific reason. And that's because there's been an injury of some kind. Or poisoning, perhaps. Well, which, right. I mean, that's, that's injurious to the body. Mm. Um, you talked a little bit about um, the digestion of, uh, of meats and, and animal um, digestion and physiology compared with ours. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Because there's a lot of people who, I guess, um, argue that uh, we perhaps are supposed to be eating meat. Um, and also talk a little bit about how we perhaps ended up 
needing to cook our food for survival? Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, it's, I think it's pretty well understood that human life started in uh, tropical Africa. And I think scientists are pretty clear on how we wound up in all the various places on the planet we wound up in, except maybe Australia. No one understands that. <laughs> but, uh, but We're our own breed here. You know, what's, what's true is that we wound up in climates that were no longer hospitable to us. I mean, you know, if we think about this for a second, um, you live in, in uh, I guess we're not sure if it's tropical or subtropical, uh, Australia. I live in the tropics in Costa Rica. It's really only in the tropics where it's warm enough 365 days a year to, to go in our birthday suits completely naked, right? Um, I put a shirt on specifically to do this this uh, interview with you because normally I, if I'm not seeing clients, I'm normally sitting here without a shirt. Now it's, you know, it's uh, 635 in the evening here. So it starts to get cool when the sun goes down, but uh, we could live here with no clothes. Right. Um, and yet, you know, people think that we've, we've evolved. The truth is if we live anywhere else on the planet, we have to wear clothing to maintain the, micro tropical climate inside of our clothes because right here at the torso it has to be about 35 35 and a half degrees celsius and we maintain that with buildings and heating systems and clothing to keep that heat keep our body heat close to our body right here in the tropics we don't need that we don't need those things you could live outside um in the evening you might want to huddle together to stay warm that's what people probably did um, certainly at this elevation, we're up in the mountains where it's a little bit cooler. But during the daytime, we don't need clothing here. And so people wound up living in places where they simply couldn't harvest food 12 months of the year. It doesn't exist in North America. You know, most parts of North America, most parts of Europe, for instance, where um, you know, so many people live today, there's a winter time. And in the winter time, there's nothing to eat. There's very little that's available to you. And so we wound up needing to eat things like meat, which needed to be cooked. There's always animals you can hunt to kill, but, um, and you know, they're not very palatable, neither the animals nor some of the root vegetables and cruciferous vegetables, which are available maybe late into the winter, if not all winter, um, those things aren't really very palatable in their natural state. And so we needed to cook. We, you know, we discovered cooking and it may well be that, those humans that didn't discover cooking didn't make it, right? And so they, they didn't, do, you know, those people are gone because they needed to find ways to have food available. But here in the tropics, it's completely unnecessary. Now, the truth is, of course, today, it's completely unnecessary for everyone because even if you live in northern Sweden, and I've been in northern Finland, I really haven't been that far north in Sweden or Norway, but I've been in northern in Finland, and you can buy fruits and vegetables all year long. They're not the best quality food I've ever had because they're coming a long way from where they were grown. And that means they were picked too early to ship. But the fact is, you know, people, the majority of people don't live in these northern, that far north. You know, they're, they're living in places like in Canada, for instance, which is a massive country north of uh, the U.S., the over 95% of the population lives within a hundred miles of the U S border. They all live in the most Southern, you know, the southernmost part of the country. Um, and you can buy 
fruits and vegetables year round. Nobody needs to be eating cooked food anymore, but we've all become acculturated to it because humans have been doing it now for hundreds of thousands of years and we've all become used to it. And it's funny, you know, it, it occurred to me just yesterday, I was talking about this in the lecture here. If we had amnesia, you know, if we woke up and we remembered absolutely nothing, like we didn't, we had no cravings for food, we had no memories of what we were eating. And someone said to you, they said to us, look, you can eat fruit and you can eat soft tender leaves, or you can eat, you can uh, kill animals and eat part of their body. Um, you could, you know, you could take grasses. Like, I mean, I, you, you, we walk by grass all the time without our mouths watering, but we're eating grasses like wheat and, and rice and barley. Why? Well, because again, people were in situations where they didn't have fresh food. And so these, you know, grains, once they're processed, we can't even eat the whole grain. So obviously no, we're not grain eaters, but we can take the, the part of the germ, the part of the grain that we can eat and we can store it dry for years. Okay, we can take beans, legumes, and store them dry for years. And this is why these are staple foods. Even here in the tropics, here in Costa Rica, most people eat rice and beans three times a day. They might add in some other things, but that's the bulk of their diet. Um, I've been here 16 years and have never had rice and beans. There's no reason to ever eat that stuff. But it's cheap and it stores for a long time. And so where you have people who don't make much money, I mean, it's crazy, you know, to me, it's one thing for people living in a city. They don't have access. They don't have, you know, like out here, everyone has at least a little farm, a little, you know, a little bit of land that their house is on where they could probably relatively easily grow all the fruit that they wanted to. And yet they don't think of fruit as real food. Most people, they still think of rice and beans and fruit. You know, maybe you have a banana every day, um, you know, but you don't think about eating bananas as a meal because that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense somehow. Um, and what sort of, like when we're eating rice and beans and things like that, I mean, God, it was just three years ago. You tell me about Avo toast and I'd, you know, I'd get all excited, you know, but what, what is that, what is that actually doing in our digestive system? Like what's actually going on there and why is that causing damage? Yeah. Well, so first of all, I mean, many people have trouble digesting things like wheat um, because it's just something that our bodies were never intended for. I mean, our, every species has a digestive tract, which, um, you know, if you believe in evolution, as, as most scientists do, would say evolved over time for the diet that, I mean, would probably, some people, if you believe in creationism, you would say, well, this is what our bodies were, you know, set up for, whatever it is, our systems, and it's interesting, people say, well, surely we've been eating all these different things now for all these years, eating cooked food and animal products, surely there's been some adaptation to that, but, but there hasn't been. Um, most people on the planet still have problems eating grains. They still develop all kinds of issues, including allergies to them. Uh, they wind up with mucus and developing asthma and all kinds of issues that don't occur. I mean, you know, I, I've, I've taken uh, many people with asthma, even local people I've met, and I've said to them, look, stop consuming dairy products and grains, and you probably won't need medication anymore. And that's what happens to most people if they just give up those two categories of food because these are foods that because our bodies can't digest them and we wind up with these proteins in our bloodstream that the body doesn't know what to do with, it creates mucus. And then we wind up not being able to breathe very well. And we wind up with all these issues. You know, if we simply stop eating those things, 
there's no more problem. But, um, you know, it's hard for most people to imagine that it could be so simple. The, the simple fact is that we have a digestive tract that however, you know, we became who we are today and for many, many years, it hasn't changed. It's adapted only to consume fruits and soft, tender leaves. We can eat small amounts of nuts and seeds, but the truth is that once our bodies get clean enough and, and have become disadapted to consuming high quantities, you know, concentrated fats and proteins, the body no longer wants concentrated fats and proteins in any quantity. So we can handle an avocado and a salad, but, you know, try eating, uh, you know, two pounds of nuts at once, eating something that I have done many times in the past when I was younger uh, and seemed to feel okay. Now, you know, my body would go, yeah, that's a bad idea. And it's not going to react very well to all that, all that process, uh, process, but all that concentrated fat and protein, not going to feel very good doing that. What sort of, uh, I completely agree. I mean, hey, I used to eat heaps of nuts and a few cashews with some dates. Yeah, baby, let's go after dinner. That was great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. That was, that was my go-to food when I felt cravings for anything as I was making it. Even, even after I changed my diet, I would still like, go to the market and I'd get myself a bag of cashews and a bag of medjools and I'd sit in my car. And you know, that was how I prevented myself from eating the pizza and other things I was still craving when I first made changes. But, you know, today I would feel like hell if I tried doing that. It just wouldn't work. How about, um, how about eating those foods too? It's my understanding that they're also taking hydration away from the body, right? Yeah, absolutely. No question about it. Whether it's a high sugar uh, content food, you know, if we look at I mean, many people think that all fruits are problematic because of their sugar content. And many people are familiar with the glycemic index, but less familiar with the glycemic load. If we look at the glycemic load, which is more predictive of impact of a food on our blood sugar, it's not a measure of anything like that. It's a measure of, uh, it basically looks at how quickly a substance lets go of its carbohydrates and multiplies that by the amount of sugar, the percentage of sugar. So it's the number of grams of sugar and 100 grams of the food. Well, you know, most people would think that fruits would have a high glycemic load because they, they're sweet things. Uh, the truth is that most fruits, fresh fruits, have a low glycemic load, uh, low as zero to nine on the, on the chart. And most fresh fruits are in the four to six or seven range with things that are very sweet, like pineapples and mangoes being about eight or nine, with nine still being low. 10 to 19 being moderate and 20 and above being high. Very sweet fruits like bananas, uh, mame sapote, uh, nispro, um, or sometimes called chico sapote or sapodilla, durian, jackfruit, um, egg fruit, also in the sapote family. These very sweet fruits are things that have a moderate glycemic load of 13 or 14. But what would surprise most people is that bread and pasta and a lot of other grains, and these things are high glycemic load foods because even though they don't taste sweet at all, their complex carbohydrates are starches, which when the body breaks them down, it breaks them down into simple sugars. But because most of these things have virtually no real fiber in them, that sugar that's, that's created when you break them down goes directly to the bloodstream, okay? It's the presence of two things, fiber and water, which slow down the absorption of sugar into the bloodstream. And this is why, you know, if we, we go to those medjool dates, they're really sweet, they're delicious, and people like them because they're sweet.
sweet. They're so sweet because they're dried. They're allowed to dry on the palm tree before we eat them. Now, if you've ever seen a fresh date, they're yellow or orange or red. They're, they're not super juicy like, uh, like a watermelon is um, or even an orange, but they're not super dry. They're sort of like a slightly dry plum. They're still a bit juicy and they're not wrinkled and they're not that's Say again? Kind of crunchy sometimes. Uh, can, can be a little bit, yeah. Um, like a plum can be. But, but, um, but they're not super sweet because they still have all this water in them. I'm not sure what their water content is, but it's probably um, at least as much as a banana, which is 73, 74% water. The dates that you buy at the market, you know, the, the, when we see these brown, wrinkled, very sweet things, these are in the 20 to 25% water content range. So by, by eliminating two-thirds or more of the water in the fruit, you have something that's much sweeter because the sugar becomes more concentrated. And when your body goes to process that, I mean, first of all, that dried food is taking water from your body. All dried foods do. Um, most people don't realize this, but stool, uh, poop, is on average is 75% water on average, okay? Um, and when we eat things that are much lower than that in water, for instance, corn chips, which are 2% water um, or 3%, when we eat corn chips, you know, they started out, corn started out being high in water, but by the time it's processed in the corn chips, it doesn't have much water in it. And so if you eat a whole bag of corn chips, it's taking water from your body. It's dehydrating you. Okay, almost everything that most people eat on a regular basis. I mean, again, the average person probably eats, you know, maybe a couple pieces of fruit per day, I would guess. Um, that's probably the only, and, and the salads that they're eating, that, those are the only things that are high in water. Everything else is low in water, right? The meat, the animal products have had the water cooked out of them. Even most of the vegetables people eat have had the water cooked out of them. Bread starts with almost no water. And it crack, I mean, imagine crackers and things like that which are completely dry, like the chips. And so people focus on eating things that are very, very low in water and sucking the water out of the body. Um, this is a serious problem for people. Nuts and seeds are typically very dry when they're eaten. They're going to take the water out of the body. I, um, I read an amazing book uh, a few years ago, which I've spoken about a few times, uh, Your Body's Many Cries for Water um, by Dr. Batman Gellidge. And... He systematically explains um, how most of our health issues uh, are somewhat, um, if not completely, related to chronic dehydration of the body. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that and how that kind of works? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I can't talk about it in so much detail, but, but I'll, I, can, I can share something I think you're aware of, and that is that I, too, came across that book in my case, uh, probably 25 years ago, um, and it, it made a lot of sense to me. Now, I mean, it, Dr. Batman Gellich, uh, as most people called him, Dr. Batman, um, he, he passed away many years ago. He only lived to 70, 72, I think, 71 or 72. Uh, in typical MD form, and I, you know, my, my, my only brother is a doctor, uh, one of my, I have a very small family. One, you know, I have half a dozen male cousins. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite cousins is a doctor. You know, it's not that I have anything against doctors, but medicine, as it's taught, doesn't make any sense today. 
it's, you know, it's all about suppressing symptoms. It was completely, they completely rewrote the textbooks and the way medicine was practiced about 100 years ago when John D. Rockefeller, the world's first billionaire, began investing in pharmaceuticals. And he literally took control of the medical system. He, he developed the American Medical Association. He created that. He uh, forced over 70% of the medical schools to shut down. And he changed the curriculum. And today, the curriculums of these schools are pretty much dictated by pharmaceutical companies. And the way that works is really simple. They go to the medical school and say, we'd like to give you a million dollar, or half million dollar grant or three million dollar grant, depending on what school it is. And they say, um, we'd also like you to change the way you're teaching this particular piece because they have access to the textbooks. We'd like you to change the way you're teaching this. Now, of course, you don't have to. There are other schools that'd be happy to have the grant if you don't want it. Okay. What they're saying is you get this money only if you do what we ask you to do. Um, they not only dictate uh, medical school curriculum, but they dedicate, they, they now also control nutritional school curriculum as well. Okay. Nutrition schools. Why would they do that? Well, the last thing that big pharma wants is for a bunch of people to be walking around healthy. That's not helping them at all, right? They're interested in their bottom line. Uh, people like me, they're not really happy about um, because in the last 34 years, the, one, you know, the, the entire consumption, medical consumption, in, has been too ibuprofen. That's it. And that was a pretty rare thing. I, mean, I really had to think hard, do I want to take this stuff? Because it had been, at that point, 30 years since I put anything in my body except food, you know, real food and water. But I had broken my hip falling three meters onto concrete and couldn't sleep four nights, not a, not a minute because I was in so much pain. And so on the fifth night, um, the, I had gone to get x-rays. My, some of my staff strongly encouraged me. We were kind of afraid I'd broken my spine. Um, and so I went to get x-rays and the doctor, attending doctor gave me some ibuprofen and some sleeping pills. I threw the sleeping pills in the trash can on my way out of the hospital and um, kept the ibuprofen and thought, you know, eh, we'll see. And I wound up taking one on the fifth night. And I wound up taking one more on the sixth night. And then I threw the rest away. And those are the only drugs I've taken in 34 years. Um, you know, it's interesting. I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in the U.S., the average person my age, again, I'll be 60 in, in uh, about eight weeks or 10 weeks, uh, the average 60-year-old takes something like five different medications every day, you know, for years. Um, and I'm never taking drugs again. I mean, I'm, I'm really clear. I mean, if I need an antibiotics to stay alive, I'll take it. But I won't take it under any other circumstances. And there have been half a dozen circumstances where um, someone said to me over the last 30 years, you need to take an antibiotic. And you've got, this is, this has happened. You're going to have an infection. You need it. I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not taking an antibiotics. I'm just not going to do it because I became really, really clear way back in my twenties that these things had destroyed my immune system. That's what they do. Anti against bio life, right? Bacteria. Most people think, still think that bacteria are the problem and, and don't, you know, don't understand that our bodies are, we have 10 times more bacteria than our own cells, right? The second brain is actually three pounds, the same weight as the brain, roughly, three pounds of bacteria, 10 trillion bacteria that live in that gut, 
It's called the gut biome. And they're actually doing a whole bunch of things for us. We have what's called a symbiotic relationship, right? So we give them room and board. And what they're doing is they're cleaning out all the garbage for us. They, they consume dead and dying tissue. We need them to do that. We can't survive without them. When we kill them, we destroy bacteria. We stop having symptoms because symptoms are evidence that the body's actually cleansing and healing. So if we, we take antibiotics, we kill the bacteria, which we're doing something we needed them to do, but didn't feel good. And we kill them. Now we have no symptoms, but we also don't ever get healthy. Um, so what about people who are experiencing symptoms? Um, and we say, well, you know, symptoms are the body cleansing and healing. Um, so we don't want to suppress those things. Um, so what do we actually need to do in that instance? Cause if they don't take the antibiotics, but they keep doing what they're doing, they're still going to be getting symptoms, right? That's right. Um, they may never heal. Right. So the key is to truly get out of the body's way rather than trying to manipulate the body in any way. We want to get out of the body's way so that it's able to heal as efficiently and as effectively as possible. Now, if we look around at the animal kingdom, I don't know, Alex, if you grew up with any pets, did you have dogs or cats growing up? Yeah, we had a dog and a cat. Yeah. Okay. Did either one of them ever get sick enough that it refused to eat? Uh, I think the sickest that was after um, our dog, he, um, he got castrated, you know, um, and I, I know let's not talk about that. <laughs> he, um, he did not want to eat for a couple of days after that. Like he was not. Yeah. Wanting. Right. Right. Well here, as, as you know, we have cats, we have, uh, we currently have five cats and, um, all but the two youngest ones. We have two that are, are now, I still call them kittens. They're pretty much full grown. They're about uh, 14, 15 months old now. Um, they've been with us since December of 2019, late December. They were dropped off in front of our gate. And um, we still have two of the five that originally showed up here. The other three cats, that are all, which are all adults, we have two that are about um, eight years old. We have one that is uh, five, five and a half years old. Those three cats have all fasted on their own without being asked to. I grew up with a dog. We saw the dog fast as well. Um, and this is, they instinctively, I mean, you know, people say, well, they're too weak. They can't get to the food. You can put their food right in front of their faces. I've tried with all of them just to make sure that wasn't the, the issue. They refuse to touch it instinctively they understand something that most people don't understand. And that is that processing food takes way too much energy that we don't run on food. I mean, I have a, a client who um, was dealing with pneumonia and the doctors are saying, well, you need to eat more protein. This is someone living on fruit and salad. You need to eat more protein to heal. No, you don't need to do that. <laughs> Not at all. Um, that's the, first, the last thing that you need to do. Is, is start eating animal products, which is what they were trying to get him to do, to get more protein into the body. What we need is to get out of the body's way because healing, cleansing, all the restorative processes are biological processes, which means only the organism can heal the organism. That's it. There's nothing else, okay? There's nothing you can take that can heal you. Drugs, which are toxic substances, I'm still trying to understand how it is, what the idea is, how a toxic substance is going to heal you. There are people that will tell you that these, you know, that these drugs healed them. No, no, they didn't. 
That doesn't happen. What drugs do is they suppress symptoms. And so we feel better. Antibiotics kill the bacteria. Now we have no symptoms. We feel better. But that's what all drugs do. That's all they do. If you have hypertension, they give you drugs for hypertension. They're just treating a symptom. You feel better because you don't have the symptom or your numbers are better because, you know, you know my, my father used to say um, he was obese for many the last 30, 40 years of his life. And I would say, Dad, you're going to develop all these. I'm not perfectly fine. I don't have hypertension. He didn't tell me he was taking five medications every day, literally five different medications. He kept that a secret from me. Um, you know, he died. He had multiple heart attacks and died of a stroke. The drugs they put him on um, statistically don't extend a person's life by a single day. They don't reduce death rate. Now, they'll tell you differently, by the way, when they do studies on these hypertensive drugs, they say that people live longer when they take them, extends their life. But it's interesting. Who do you think takes these drugs most often? Uh, pretty sick people, I would imagine. And, and what age group would you guess they are? People who take hypertensive drugs. 60s and beyond? Yeah, they tend to be people who are 60 or older on average, right? The, the largest group of them are probably people between 60 and death, you know, 78, 79. Um, when they do these studies, they don't accept people into the study if they're over 50. They're looking at younger people. I mean, there's a relatively small percentage of people under 50 who even have hypertension. Those are the only people they look at in the study and they say, well, these people, you know, survive 25 years on these medications. Something that most people with hypertension don't do without, well, that's because they're looking at young people. They're not looking at the average person taking the drugs. Um, but the real statistics say that people don't live longer. My father was no exception. Didn't make him any healthier. He died of a stroke after having multiple heart attacks. I had to go to the hospital five or six times in the last 20 plus years of his life. Um, these drugs didn't help him. In fact, they probably killed him ultimately. You know, he, he wound up, he, he uh, fell down, hit his head, bled to death in his brain. And um, when I got home for his funeral, I said to my, my little brother, whose buttons I like to push, because that's what we do as, as siblings. I said, another one of, I remember he's the doctor. I said, another one of our family members killed by medicine. And he said, what do you mean? He died of a stroke. I said, yes, you're right, Justin, he did. Would he have bled to death if he wasn't taking blood thinners? And my little brother said, no, probably not. Okay, this is what happens. That's not counted as iatrogenic disease. Iatrogenic disease is mistakes of doctors in medicine and officially is the number three leading cause of death in the world after cancer and heart disease. But unofficially is probably the number one cause of death in the world. I mean, literally every member of my family died because of some interaction with the drugs they were taking or the damage that those drugs did to their liver or their kidneys, you know, something like that. I mean, this is what's happening um, more often than not. And of course, it's happening a lot more often today. Yeah, right. Let's not start talking about um, COVID vaccinations. But um, We don't have to go there. Yeah, <laughs> we don't. I don't think we should. Um, the helicopters would descend on our place of exactly. Um, exactly. So, so how can we well and truly get out of our way? Then um, you alluded to it um, with with the cats and and what instinctively animals. Well, that's are. that's right. That's right. What every other species on the planet does instinctively is it's it lays down, stops moving any more than necessary, 
and, and refuses to eat, right? We call it fasting, but this is what animals do. And they don't have a name for it. They don't think, okay, I'm going to fast now. They just instinctively know, you know what? This would be a good time to not eat. And they'll keep not eating until their body feels better, until they feel healed. How long that takes varies from species to species. And, you know, with dogs, it can be months that they'll go without food, a large dog. Um, cats typically won't go more than five or six days in most cases because there's something about their liver that makes it difficult for them to go longer. And that, that probably has to do with the way we fed our cats, the way cats get fed. Um, but but uh, domesticated cats typically don't fast very long. My guess is that cats in nature uh, can probably go much longer. I mean, carnivores will often go, depending on the species like lions and tigers, they may have to go quite a long time without finding food. And they have the ability to do that. Humans... We, we can choose to simply stop eating. And while most people think this is crazy and most doctors certainly don't understand it, um, you know, the ir- irony is, is that before John D. Rockefeller got involved and changed the curriculum of the medical schools, they used to teach fasting in medical schools as a tool because medicine originally was about helping people be healthy. It's not about that anymore. And anyone who thinks it is, is, is in for a rude awakening. You know, medicine is about selling drugs. And that's really, I mean, that's the primary focus of medicine. So even surgical patients wind up needing drugs, you know, sometimes before, during, and after surgery. Um, it's, all, it's all a plan to keep people consuming these things day after day. It's a customer retention program. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, frankly, um, neither you or I is all that smart. You know, you, you sell something, you sell an expensive, uh, not so expensive, but you, know, you spell, sell this, this very nice um, sauna, which people uh, take and, and, you know, put together. I guess they have to put it together themselves or have someone do it for them. Um, we right? do that for them, but um, yeah. You can do that for them as well. But, but in any case, you know, they, they, they buy this device, which uh, because it's a quality thing is probably going to last them a very long time. So now you have to go find somebody else to buy another one. Um, you know, we, we make the mistake here of actually helping people get their health back so they don't need us anymore. How smart is that? You know, medicine's much smarter. They put McDonald's in hospitals in the U.S. That's really smart. But here's the difference, here's the difference Lauren. I mean, you, you're on the money. You, you and I aren't as good a businessman as uh, the pharmaceutical companies. However, um, we get to sleep at night. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can sleep at night, but you have, you're on a mission, man. Like what you do at Tanglewood, it, it it changes people's lives. And you know, I'm so into fasting and an advocate for it myself because it changes people's consciousness. You know, and it brings us to this new level, and that impacts the people around us, right? And no they, question they make changes, it. and they take their health back into their own control and take responsibility for their actions, and they improve their health and. That's what we're doing, you know. That's that's the real work, you know, and that's what I love. Exactly. No, exactly. I mean, obviously, um, you know, it's kind of it's kind of humorous how I mean, all the people who don't understand what we're doing and think it's uh, it's a scam. I've been um, you know accused of being a cult leader over and over again. This is a cult. You know, the, the facts are very simple, and we, we can actually go all the way back to the beginnings of Western medicine, right? Hippocrates considered the world's first Western physician. There were probably physicians in the East before he existed, you know, in older cultures. But um, Hippocrates was, was uh, 
was Greek, I believe, and he um, is very famous for a couple of quotes. Ironically, one co-opted by allopathic Western medicine, which says, first, do no harm. Oops. Um, you remember, they kill more people than anything besides cancer and heart disease, officially, according to the World Health Organization. Number, uh, and then the other piece adopted by every alternative practitioner is let your food be your medicine, your medicine, your food. And yet very few people know what his very next words were, because as soon as he said that, his next words in the same oration were, but to feed yourself when you're already sick is to feed your sickness. Okay, he was really clear that if your body needs to heal, you should stop eating. And this is what he did. He fasted his patients. Uh, people used to fast. It was a regular thing. You know, Rumi, uh, the world's most prolific poet, wrote about fasting. And I doubt people said, what are you talking about? What do you eat when you're fasting? They understood it because that was, it was a common practice. Um, you know, it's interesting that our, our most, in some of the most enlightened humans that we've ever known, uh, people like Jesus and Buddha and Lao Tzu and Muhammad and Moses all fasted for 40 days. This common thing, why is that? I mean, I tell people, if you fast for 40 days, you become instantly enlightened. That's not exactly true, but it's a great tool because as you said, one of the things that happens for people, and I actually believe maybe the most important thing that happens for people, if they do this correctly, is that they deal with their emotions and they come out the other side a lot more emotionally balanced than when they started. And, you know, when we're emotionally balanced and we're vibrating the way that everything else in nature vibrates, the way a human body is supposed to vibrate, because we all have frequencies, right? Our body too has a frequency. When we're vibrating that way, we have access to everything. I mean, spirituality for me is about being connected to everything. And when we're vibrating along with everything else in nature, that's what happens. That's, we have this, all of a sudden we have this connection. So it truly is about the emotional and spiritual piece as much as, if not more than the physical piece. And yet almost everyone comes to me because of some physical reason that they're trying to deal with. Um, and that's great. We're going to deal with that too. That happens. Um, you know this firsthand and you not only saw it with yourself and your lovely partner, Kristen, but also with all the other people around you. Yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're in this dense physical world and for a lot of people, um, health is just simply the, the stuff we can touch. It's the food, it's water, you know, it's the body, uh, forgetting about that spiritual piece. Um, and yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I understand completely. I started in the same place. You know, my, my desire at 23 was to get my health back. When I, when I realized at 26 that medicine wasn't the way and I started looking around, ultimately what, what happened was I wound up adopting a raw vegan diet and wound up finding about fasting and it completely shifted my consciousness. I mean, my path had been, uh, I was in the commercial real estate business. You know, my goal was to um, become a multimillionaire by the time I was 35 and retire and then go live my real life, whatever that was going to be. Um, I found it. I just, just wound up doing it without the millions of dollars to, to support me. Um, you know, I realized that I was much less interested in money. I started to say before, it's kind of funny that I get a all the time of running the center just to make money. And I think that there are probably ways I could do that without working 16 hours a day. 
you know, there are probably a lot easier ways to make money than running a fasting center. So I, if you want to make a lot of money, I, I would not recommend this path. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the main, I guess, physical symptoms, like we're just talking about, that people come to fast with you and the sort of uh, sure. experiences and results that come through fasting? Well, we, we literally, I mean, there, there are very few conditions in, that I haven't seen in 24 years working with thousands of people. We see on average uh, now, and we're only open now, uh, until recently it's been 30 weeks a year here, and plus I work with people remotely, but we used to be open all the time. Uh, we're now actually going this year, 2021, we're going to be open a little bit more than we have in the past. Our, our schedule is now 10 weeks open, five weeks closed. And so we'll wind up being open, you know, 30 some weeks every year now. Um, but we, we wind up seeing several hundred. I wind up working with, you know, four to 500 people a year on average. And so there's been thousands of people over all these years. And we see a pretty, pretty complete cross-section of everything that's out there. Um, and we see them in more or less, in most cases, more or less the numbers that they're represented in, in nature, you know, in, in, in culture and society. So, for instance, we see a lot of people with hypertension because hypertension is a very common condition for people over 50. Um, we see a lot of those people. We, the one thing we don't see in the same numbers is cancer. And I think the reason why is because most people dealing with the big C are so terrified that even if they've spent the last 20 years you know, talking about alternative health and looking away from conventional medicine, as soon as they get a cancer diagnosis, they run right back to their allopathic doctor and say, what do I do? Um, but with the exception of those people, you know, everything else, I mean, we see a lot of people with, with diabetes, usually type 2 diabetes, which is over 90% of what diabetics are dealing with. Type, type 1, as you probably know, is insulin-dependent diabetes. These are people whose pancreas doesn't make all the insulin they need. Uh, and then we have type 2 diabetes, which is insulin-resistant diabetes. Insulin-dependent diabetes is uh, much more challenging. Most people who have type 1 diabetes are probably going to need to take insulin for the rest of their life. Now, like Guzel, who you know, who has been producing all my videos now for more than two years, um, she takes something around 20 to 25 percent as much insulin as the average person her age, weight, and size would need to take. Um, and that's living on a fruit-based diet where most people are all, all that sugar. Yeah, as a side yeah. note, she's eating fruit only. <laughs> exactly. Fruit, you know, nothing but fruit and, and simple salads most of the time. You know, all raw, nothing but fruit and salad most of the time. So um, even there, you know, her, her insulin needs are far less uh, type two diabetes, we actually have a hundred percent success eliminating, which means people wind up completing their process with us four weeks or longer, and they no longer need the medication and their blood sugar is below normal with no medication. We see the same thing with hypertension. We, we've had, well, I, I'm so angry. I had a client who was in the seventies who blew it for us. We had a hundred percent success eliminating hypertension with more than 400, getting closer to 500 uh, hypertensive clients. We had a man in his 70s, about 76, a couple of years ago, whose blood pressure when he started was 176 over, and I don't remember the, the diastolic number, I think it was 97 or something like that. Um, when he finished, his blood pressure was 126 over 
you know, 75, something like that. So he, he still was uh, officially six points above normal. But we had literally, according to, to statistics, uh, for every point someone is above 120, they have a 2% greater likelihood of heart attack or stroke. So we reduced his blood pressure by 50 points, which means eliminated 100% of the risk. I mean, we dropped his risk by 100%. So that's pretty significant. Everyone else winds up under 120, and that's with well over 400 people. Uh, we see people with arthritis. We see people with um, Lyme disease and multiple sclerosis and pretty much anything you can think of. Um, and so... How does the process actually work if people are coming to fast with you? Like what's actually involved once they're there? Well, let, let me start before they get here because uh, what happens with people is, you know, they get a bunch of information from us. Um, they, they reserve their, uh, their stay with us. And then we do a one-on-one -on -one video call with them to talk about the process. And we're actually in the process of shifting a little bit. In fact, we have a brand new revised remote fasting program where as soon as they register, they'll, they'll get um, a couple of back-to-back -back emails with videos from me that explain the process and explain what they need to do and how to do it. And uh, you know, our, our objective is to make sure people are as knowledgeable and keep as safe as possible. Um, so we do the same basic thing, how that happens, maybe a little different right now. But we, we, you know, we get them here. And then they arrive and they begin their fast when they arrive. And so, um, you know, we start with an orientation, which is um, an explanation and a reminder because they've already gotten this information from us of everything that needs to happen. And what needs to happen is as little as possible, right? Their objective is to rest as completely as they can because what we're trying to do is to conserve as much of the body's energy as we can so the body can use that energy to cleanse and heal. That's what we're trying to get to. And so we encourage them to do as little as they possibly can. And their stay here involves, um, you know, resting where we're in the tropics. We have beautiful gardens. We have a jungle. Um, we have, uh, you know, the grounds are beautiful here. And people are encouraged to just find comfortable places to rest. They can rest in, in their room. They can rest in, we have a common area where my videos, were, most of my videos are recorded where we can seat about 65 people. We typically don't have more than about 34 people here fasting at one time. So there's plenty of space for people to spread out, be where they want to. We have beautiful lawns. There are shaded places. People can go on the grass to, to ground themselves, which is something I recommend everyone do. We have benches throughout the property. We have kilometers of trails on site and there's benches. So you can walk a little ways and find a comfortable place to sit down and watch the birds and the butterflies. Um, I mean, the nature here is astonishing. Um, you know, I'm literally blown away every single day. Every, I, I try to get myself into the garden at least for a little while. It's been my busiest time ever uh, in, you know, in, in the 24 years I've been running this business. It's been a crazy year with this whole uh, pandemic. With, you know, six months with no clients able to get into the country, it kept me very busy working online. And we took advantage of the time to create some new programs. So we have this new remote fasting program. We created the um, Academy for Vibrant Living and our first course, um, Vibrant Health. And we have a health coaching course, which we will um, be recording videos for starting next week, actually, uh, within about uh, 
a month, that program will be complete and ready to go. Uh, but it's, you know, it's been a super busy year for me. And so our, our people are encouraged to just rest as completely as they can. There's a lecture every day for an hour because education is huge. You know, what we're trying to do is not just help people get through the process while they're here for four or five, six weeks, whatever it might be, but also to get home and know how to continue meeting all their body's needs as well as they possibly can so that they never, ever need to come back and do well. They, they don't need to come back. Most people actually benefit from fasting a few times. But, you know, but our goal is kind of the opposite of, of uh, Big Pharma, which is to hook people forever. We're actually trying to liberate people so that they know exactly what they need, just so they don't need us anymore eventually. And uh, so that looks like a lecture. You know, after that, each day I, I go and see each person, talk with each person about what's going on for them. We have a nurse in the morning, takes their vital signs and weighs them every day. And we, um, I talk to them about what's going on in their body, what these vital signs mean, what's happening, what they need to do and not do. And then they're basically free most of the day to just relax and enjoy themselves as much as one can when they're sometimes suffering a little bit. Because it's important to understand that when the body is detoxifying and healing, there will be symptoms, as we discussed earlier. Um, and then in the evenings, four nights a week, we have a guided, uh, well, we have a, a group meditation reading and discussion around um, spirituality, unconditional love. And then one night a week tonight is actually movie night. So I'm free tonight to be here with you right now because normally I'd be in a meditation right now. Uh, we'd be ending the meditation. I'd be starting to read at seven, around 7.20 every night, except for Wednesday. Wednesday we're showing a movie. Um, to I'm, uh, I'm very grateful for movie night uh, because... Uh, I get to have your time now, so I'm very, very grateful that everyone's. Ah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about? I, I want to get into the the refeeding process because, um, in some ways, that's more challenging than the fasting itself. Uh, but it before, is for many people. Yeah. Yeah, but before we get there, what, what's actually going on in the body during a fast? You know, I understand. Uh, you know, the first kind of few days we were really starting to um, transition into ketosis and having our body run on um, fat for fuel, but we're still burning muscle and all these kind of things. What's actually happening physiologically? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you just uh, said the most important parts, you know, that our bodies, so when we stop eating, um, our bodies are, are constantly looking for glucose. Glucose is the body's preferred fuel. That's what we run on. Um, you know, we think of that as blood sugar. And we have to have glucose in the bloodstream all the time. It needs to be within a particular range or we don't do very well. And so the body's looking for sugar when we stop eating. Um, what the first thing it does is it, well, it continues to use whatever's in the digestive tract for the first eight to 12 hours, uh, at which point whatever's there ceases to become very useful to us, uh, given you know the this, this state at which it's broken down or has begun to ferment or whatever it might be. And so uh, at that point, the body goes to the liver where we store glycogen. And glycogen is a glucose precursor. This, this is simply how we store glucose. And we store it in the muscles and we store it in the liver. We, we wind up conserving muscle glycogen for very good reasons. And I can give you an example. Um, polar bears don't hibernate as most, uh, as many other bears do. But when the females are pregnant, they will build themselves a den and go down into this den and they will be there for five months where they birth 
their cubs and feed them until they're strong enough to make a long hike. And they'll be there for five months consuming no food or water. Um, they're fasting the whole time while feeding these two cubs. When they're done, when, they, when it's time to come out, on average, they've got to hike about 75 miles, which is, what, 110 or 115 kilometers, I think, something like that, uh, in, in order to get food. Okay, so imagine if they had nothing to power their muscles up, you know, the, the, the mama after five months of being in there. So that we, we retain muscle glycogen because it makes sense to do that in nature where we may have to go climb a tree to get food or whatever it is. But the body takes all the liver glycogen and converts it to glucose. And that's typically an eight to 12 hour supply. And in fact, it's important to point out you know, some of what I'm about to say is going to sound kind of strange to many people. I'm called an idiot at least once a day on, on uh, YouTube uh, by somebody. Um, but we actually measure, you know, people's body composition. We measure their muscle mass and body fat. And what the body does once it's depleted liver glycogen, because two things I think are true that people may not realize. One, you may have decided you're not going to eat for 21 or 26 or 30 or 42 days, whatever it is. But your body doesn't know that. Your body only knows that it's been 23 hours and there's been no food coming in. And now it needs something, right? So it's got to decide what makes the most sense. It doesn't know that it's going to be weeks before there's food. It, it only knows that this has never before happened in your life. You've never had to go this long without finding some food. You'll probably find food any moment. And so because the body's set up to run on sugar, it keeps doing that. But there's no sugar. So what does the body do? Well, it actually converts muscle to sugar. And this process is called gluconeogenesis, new sugar production. Um, it's, a, it's a chemical conversion process. Uh, there's no sugar in muscle, but the body converts it and is able to make sugar to feed itself. Uh, it'll only go, for most people, it'll only go about two more days. So by the time we're three or three and a half days into the process, the average person's body says, okay, you know what? I don't want to burn muscle indefinitely. I don't want to lose all my muscle. I need muscle. So maybe we should start switching over to fat, right? Fat is, I mean, we, we store fat so that we can survive in the absence of food, but we don't go to it right away. And again, we can see this very clearly because we, we actually measure these things every day now. In fact, I think when you were here, we were measuring once a week. And I started, I decided, you know, we, we actually have extra personnel here now so we can, because this takes a lot of time to measure everyone, but we, we weigh people every single day so we can actually see what's going on day to day. And it's, it's pretty fascinating to watch. Um, virtually everyone continues consuming muscle and how much drops uh, the greatest amount is the first three days. And then the next seven days after that, and by the time we're about 10 or 11 days in, we have gone to a very low maintenance level of muscle uh, consumption. And, be, and that's only because even though we're now pretty much fully in ketosis, which means we're running on ketones, which are a metabolic breakdown product from metabolizing fat, right? We store fat so we can survive. Our bodies are now running on fat, but the brain, uh, the sex organs, the gonads, and you know, the whole reproductive system and the spleen are all organs and systems that require sugar. And it's, it's, there's not much sugar available from fat. We can, we can uh, make a little bit of, of uh, sugar from fat, but it's much easier for the body to use muscle. And so we do see people's muscle continue to go down. Um, it's not something anyone needs to worry about. Um, first of all, 
you know, if we look and see, oh my gosh, someone's lost 10 kilos of muscle. Well, muscle um, for the average person is around 68, 70% water. I believe it should be 80, but it's around 68, 70% water. So if we lose 10 kilos of muscle, we've actually lost about 3.2 kilos of muscle and about 6.8 kilos of water that it was holding. And when we rebuild muscle, the water comes back. It's like losing a dry sponge, you know, a wet sponge. We're like, oh, I lost a pound of sponge. No, you lost maybe, you know, you lost, uh, let's, let's talk kilograms because that's your audience. Um, now let's say you lose uh, 500, you know, 450 grams of a wet sponge. Well, it's really maybe 50 grams of sponge and 400 grams of water. And if you find the 50 grams of sponge again, a dry sponge, it's going to absorb the water with no problem. Um, most people find that when they complete a long enough fast, say 21 days or longer, what I call a therapeutic fast, if it's done properly, the body is so efficient that they rebuild muscle easily. And in, in fact, this is a bit of an aside, but I just about two weeks ago, as you know, I do a Friday morning, um, 9 a.m. Costa Rica time, live broadcast in English every week now for years, four or five years. And there was a guy who had just left us about three weeks earlier. I think he's uh, about 34. He was a professional football player. Um, that's American football, but in Canada, the Canadian Football League. And he was injured and had to stop playing. And it, I mean, football had been his life. This is something he'd been preparing for since he was a kid. And, you know, began playing when he was 10 or 11 years old. Um, he was playing professional ball. He got depressed when he had to stop playing because of this injury. Became hooked on antidepressants. And, you know, life became a, a disaster. He wasn't working. He couldn't work. He gained a bunch of weight. You know, he felt like a, a, a bloated, you know, whatever. And he finally came here. And he fasted, I think, for 23 or 24 days and did the refeeding process. And it was about three weeks after the end of his process. He's back home and he comes onto the live and says, I did some deadlifts yesterday and I'm stronger than I've ever been in my life. This is a professional athlete. Three weeks later, after the process, he's living on fruit and salad still. He's actually coming down this week to volunteer. And he's, uh, he's on his way here now. Um, but, you know, he's still living on fruit and salad. He weighs less than he ever has, I mean, as a professional athlete. And he's eating a fraction of the number of calories he used to eat. But he's lifting more than he's ever lifted before. And this is what happens. I mean, people are amazed at how strong they can be and how quickly they rebuild muscle after the process. So, but this is what happens. We do consume muscle. And by the time we're 10 or 11 days in, it's almost exclusively fat with a tiny amount of muscle. Um, now, one of the things that's going on, a term uh, thanks to intermittent fasting, um, you know, fasting itself has become much better known, uh, probably easier for people to hear about than it used to be. And one of the things people have probably heard of is autophagy. Um, uh, phagy, that this comes from Greek. Autophagy literally means self-eat. And autophagy is where the body is consuming the stuff it doesn't want um, to get rid of it and to actually gain energy. It uses whatever it's able to use. And so the body goes and it consumes tumors. It consumes uh, fibroids. It consumes any mass that doesn't belong, any garbage that doesn't belong. You know, it gets rid of what it can and uses whatever it's able to. And it's interesting. I have a client who recently, and again, this, I know this sounds crazy to people, but she fasted 72 days with me. And um, 
she kept a doctor's appointment. She fasted, did this remotely, but she, uh, via Skype, she kept a doctor's appointment that she had scheduled on the 21st day. It had been scheduled before she, we set this up and um, she decided it was going to be much more difficult for various reasons. I won't go into to change it. So she kept this appointment. Uh, just a few things about her. This is a woman who is around 40. Uh, seven years ago, she had uh, breast cancer and had a tumor surgically removed from her breast and went, underwent you know, chemotherapy and all that garbage. Um, she, so here she is. She's 40 years old. Uh, five years after the medical procedure for cancer, she develops three tumors in the same breast. And this is, uh, by the way, this is all too common. And it, you know, it gives me a chance to come back and talk about medicine for just a second. I mentioned earlier that medicine is about suppressing symptoms. So cancer treatment involves removing the tumor in some cases and treating it with chemotherapy or radiation. And what people, you know, people think, well, the tumor's gone. Medicine thinks. I mean, they say, okay, you're you're cancer free. You're healthy. You can go do whatever you want, right? Um, they don't say. You might want to think about what you're eating and what you're doing. They don't say that. Again, why would they? That would um, eliminate the, you know, the, the customer attention program they've so carefully set up. So what happened, you know, medicine says that cancer treatment is successful if you survive, just live five years. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the shorter five years is. And telling, you know, telling me I'm going to survive five years, yeah, that's not really such a huge prize. Um, and... You know, five years later, cancer comes back. And we see this all the time. And I've, I've literally, I've worked with uh, more than 50 women with breast cancer over the years. And most of them are women who are dealing with a recurrence of cancer, having been told they were perfectly healthy and having the cancer show up again. And this is her kid's situation. She developed three tumors. They were growing quickly. This is often the case. It's more aggressive second time around. And she was told that um, she needed to have this treated right away. But, you know, she understood that, after the first time around, she had found my videos and been watching me for several years and just waiting for the right time. And so she decided she wasn't going to do conventional treatment because conventional treatment only suppresses the symptom, which is the tumor. It eliminates the symptom. The actual cause of cancer is toxicity and poor immune function. And cancer treatment creates more toxicity and even worse immune function. And so cancer always comes back. And again, brilliant. It's a brilliant strategy. Um, you know, keep customers. So here it's back. These tumors, in the, in the breast, one of the things that's interesting is you can palpate the tumor. You can feel it. You know, if a tumor is in the in the liver, the pancreas, or anywhere inside the body, you can't really do that. But every time she would see her doctor, the doctor would check to see the size of these three tumors. But it was incredibly painful, for excruciatingly painful when the doctor would do this. So on the 21st day of her fast, she goes to see the doctor, and the doctor can not find any of these tumors. They've disappeared in 21 days fasting. That's what happens. That's autophagy at work. Okay, that's what happens. Now it's not just tumors, but we see this all the time with tumors. Uh, she also, by the way, since I mentioned her, she had a severely low vitamin D level, and she was um, fasting in Boston in the winter time and wasn't even going outside. There's no sunshine anyway. Um, if you don't know, Boston is pretty far north in the U.S. It gets really cold there, uh, usually starting in October and again, it starts getting warm again in like June. And this is in December. 
There's no sun. She's not going outside. She's got no vitamin D exposure. Um, she's taking nothing except uh, clean water. And the doctor does a test and her vitamin D is now perfect. It's a healthy range. Um, she also was pre-diabetic with blood sugar. That was historically you know, 130, 120 to 150 every day. And her blood sugar was now perfect. Um, this is a typical thing. Wow. Um, what's, going, what, what's, what's going on there with the vitamin D? How, does that, how is that even possible? Well, we see this uh, actually, Alex, with all kinds of things, not just vitamin D. I mean, first of all, let's talk about vitamin D for just a second because it's so poorly understood. You know, people think, well, you have to eat animal products to get vitamin D or you have to eat fortified foods to get vitamin D. And I mean, many people live in places where they're going to have a problem. Uh, this may well be true in Southern Australia. Um, as, as it is, you know, certainly for people living in the north of the U.S., anywhere in Canada, um, in much of Europe, you know, if you look at Scandinavia, where you have the greatest concentration of people living so far from the equator, you see that we have the highest rates of depression, suicide, alcoholism, you know, um, and suicide. And this is because we're tropical animals that must have sunlight you know, ideally every day. I mean, you know, it's, it, we, can, we can store sunlight for some period of time, but, um, and here in the tropics, we might, you know, for instance, in Costa Rica in October and parts of November, which is hurricane season in the Caribbean, right? We're a tiny country here. So from the Caribbean coast to the Pacific coast is only, that's 200 miles or so. It's uh, 300 kilometers. Uh, it's not very far. And if there are hurricanes in the Caribbean, We'll have tropical storms here. We might have three or four days, you know, a couple times a year, we'll have three or four days where there's no sunshine at all. But it's never more than, you know, it's never more than five days. In the 16 years I've lived here, I, I don't think we've ever gone more than five days without sunshine. Um, usually, most of the year, there's sunshine every single day. And so it's pretty easy to get enough vitamin D living in this climate, you know, if you set your life up properly. Um, vitamin D is actually not a vitamin at all. It's a hormone and it's produced by the body. So animal products contain vitamin D because animals make it just like we do. They make it upon exposure to sunlight. That's what we're intended to do. You know, the fact is, again, we can use these other sources, but we're creating problems for ourselves. And what we really need is to get natural exposure to sunlight. You guys did something brilliant this year and I'm really proud of you for doing it. Um, you moved from Melbourne up to Northern Australia where you have sunlight all year long. Hallelujah. That's what you need. That's what you need to be as healthy as possible. Um, and so then in which case, um, I didn't answer your question, did I? No, no, I, <laughs> no I'm glad you said that. Cause I was about to get on the bandwagon about in Melbourne. I, I just sound like a broken record saying to everyone like human beings are not designed for this climate. <laughs> no, no, exactly. I mean, you know, we're smart enough to be able to adapt to living anywhere. There, you know, there are people who spend six months a year living at the South Pole, you know, doing research there, living. But uh, clearly, this is not what we're intended to be. And it's amazing. I don't know about you. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're feeling it. You've been up there now for what? Uh, yeah, like six months, months or more. Four months. Yeah. I mean, what a difference, huh? You know, I, I personally, I, I was doing pretty well. I spent 14 years outside of Washington, D.C., 100% raw vegan, eating organic food, exercising. We, and Washington, D.C. is a pretty sunny place. 
So almost every day I'd have lunch sitting on a big deck that faced Southwest and, and there was a little corner where there was no breeze. And I would sit out there in just a pair of shorts and flip-flops, even when it was below zero in the wintertime, because the sun would warm me up. Um, you know, it was perfectly fine. And yet I moved down to South Central America and I'm going, holy crap. I mean, I thought I was doing pretty well before. I feel so much better in this climate. Yeah, 100%. You know, it comes down to, for me, like how high is health as a priority? And for me, exactly. it's the number one priority. And for a lot of our listeners, it's their number one priority. And so, you know. As it should be, I believe. Yeah. As yeah. it should be. Yeah. And people ask me why why I moved to Queensland. Oh, is it because of the weather? And it's like, yes, that's exactly why. <laughs> because there's more sunshine here. In Melbourne, we get uh, sunshine during the summertime. Uh, but in the winter, you have to seek it in the wintertime. Like, yeah. Yeah, and, and if you don't, exactly. you, you miss out. You know, uh, up here, um, I I don't have to seek it. I just get it. <laughs> it just happens. Yeah, I mean, you, that, that's right. I mean, it's it's. Um, I do uh, like to spend you know five or ten minutes sitting in the sun every day if I can, but I don't really need to. I mean, normally, you know, I'll, I'll um, as you know, we have extensive uh, trails and gardens here. Um, we're growing again. We, we as, as I think you know, uh, back in March a year ago, we acquired the 27 acres, 11 hectares next door. So we went from a four hectare site to a 15 hectare site. And I've done all, I've done all the gardens and trail designs as well as building designs myself. And so I'm usually outside at least not this year so much because I've been so busy, but you know, all these other years we've been on this site now for eight years uh, next month and eight or nine. I don't remember actually, but, um, you know, I'm usually outside at least an hour a day, which means I I can't avoid getting plenty of sunshine. You know, my gardeners, the the guys that work here all day, every day wear shirts and sometimes the extra, they have short sleeve shirts, but they wear these sleeves to protect their arms because they're outside, they wear hats because they're outside all the time. When I go outside, if I only have an hour, I take my shirt off. Right. I make sure that I'm getting more sun because I'm not outside all day like they are. I wish I, I wish I was. <laughs> yeah. Who's, who's got the better job, right? Yeah. And I just want to add as well, you know, it's, um, it's not, it's not that I understand. It's not the easiest thing for everyone to just like get up and shift. No, of course, country, of course, you know, um, but like I was saying, for me, my health's the number one priority. And so I did what I had to do to make that happen, you know? Yeah, me too. It wasn't the easiest thing for me either. I mean, I had, you know, Tanglewood existed in the US. We had a big building, a big property. We had a lot of stuff, you know, it was making the move. It was a lot easier to stay where we were than to make a move. Right, right. But, you know, there's, there's nothing like being able to walk outside and pick fruit off our own trees and as you probably know, we now have more than 150 varieties of fruit growing on site. Um, we, we pick fruit every day. That's uh, it's a beautiful thing. Um, coming back to the vitamin D then. So how did, how did her vitamin D levels actually improve? Right. Is that, is well, we see the same. Is it a, an efficiency going on in the body that's being improved or something? That's probably part. I mean, honestly, you know, the, the, the real answer is we don't know. But there's a couple things to understand. Um, our nutrient needs are dramatically diminished while fasting. Now, you know, she's, she's well past the fast for vitamin D levels. She's still in Boston. It's still winter. And her vitamin D levels are still fine. Uh, so one of the things that's true is that 
um, when our bodies are clean and working well, they're much more efficient. The other thing that appears to be true, and this is not just with vitamin D, but this is with all kinds of things, is that we store things in the body and but don't have aren't able to use them properly so we see people that come in with uh magnesium deficiencies or iron deficiencies that will resolve them and this isn't always what happens but we see many people who resolve deficiencies while consuming only water where these things aren't present you know it seems crazy but it happens over and over again um so clearly the stuff was in the body Right. I mean, it's where, and, and again, a big part probably does have something to do with being much more efficient afterward. Um, what are the typical symptoms people are experiencing during fasting? Well, they range from um, cold symptoms and flu symptoms and headaches and nausea and stomach aches. Um, I mean, not that everyone has all those symptoms, but these are all things that can occur and are fairly typical. Um, they, they, you know, it could be anything. The average person is going to feel a bit weak and tired but may not have much more than that going on most of the time. And uh, I seem to recall that you were here, it was uh, just this over a year last, ago. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the same time last year. So um, I, think, I think both of you most of the time felt reasonably well, didn't really have so much going on. You know, at the same time, you probably saw other people here who were you know, terribly nauseous or were having bad headaches um, it just depends. It depends on the, the amount of toxicity in the body, the nature of that toxicity and where it's stored. It probably depends on the genetic inheritance, you know, our, our, our DNA. Um, there are all these different factors that are going to determine what, what someone experiences. But most people actually feel reasonably good, just a bit weak and tired most of the time. And then there may be periods where they feel worse than that. But it could be almost anything, depending on what's going on with them. And are a lot of those symptoms related to... Um us actually rehydrating a lot of old material and, and mucus? Uh, they are. Yeah, I mean, they're, the, the symptoms, you know, it's, it's a funny thing because I'll often hear people say that fasting is painful or fasting is difficult, you know, that you feel bad when you fast. And that is true sometimes, but it's not because you're fasting. It's because you're detoxifying. Um, I, I still enjoy uh, active sports and activities when I, when I have time to, to engage in them. Um, as I think you know, uh, I, I still have a motorcycle and a quadricycle. Um, I ride mountain bikes, although not very often anymore. I used to rock climb quite a bit and ski, and I still surf and body surf. And I will injure myself sometimes. I don't shy away from things that are dangerous if I enjoy them. Um, I mean, I don't want to die, but I, I know my, my body can heal itself. And so I have broken multiple bones over the years, uh, seven fingers, two toes, but two ribs, both knees, and my right hip. Um, and I'm here. <laughs> yeah. And um, every single time I, you know, I have any kind of an accident or any kind of an injury that I need to heal, I will stop eating. I'll, I'll rest as completely as I'm able to given the timing. I mean, if we have... 30 people here that are here for me to guide them through the process. I'm not going to not attend to them. I'm still going to see them, but I'm going to do as little as I'm able to do. And I'm going to not eat. I'm going to fast. And fasting for me is actually really easy because there are no symptoms. I feel perfectly fine. And that's because my body's not detoxing. I'm fasting not to detoxify, but to be able to put all the energy to healing a particular injury. 
you know, the more energy we can put towards healing, the faster we heal. And so just as a quick example, I had a construction accident many years ago. Um, I wound up uh, was standing on a kitchen stool and, and tipped it over. I was at the top of a concrete stairwell to a basement, my basement, in my house. And I wound up falling down the stairs and uh, my left wrist came down on a pile of metal molding that's as sharp as a razor, sliced through an artery and all my flexor tendons in my wrist, and then bounced and came down again and sliced everything in a second place. So I, I cut clean through all my one artery and all my flexor tendons twice and wound up in five hours of microsurgery, having it all reconnected, was told by the surgeon and the hand surgeon and a hand rehab guy that I might never have full use of my hand again, but I was definitely going to be in physical therapy for at least a year, given the, uh, you know, how extensive the injury and the damage was. Seven weeks and one day after the accident and surgery, the hand rehab guy said to me, I don't know how to explain this. I've never seen this before in 27 years of doing this work, but you don't need to come back. You're completely healed in seven weeks. They had said originally at least 52 weeks and maybe longer uh, and maybe not, never full, full use. You know, I completely regained full use of my hand. My hand works perfectly well. Um, no loss of strength, no loss of function, no loss of flexibility. And it happened in seven weeks. Of course, the very first thing I did was stop eating. So my body could put all the energy to healing. And I've seen this over and over again. You know, it's amazing what happens over and over again. Oh, yeah, that just makes me think I, um, I still have a long way to go in my healing journey, but um, certainly made some steps in the right direction. Oh, you've made huge steps. I mean, you've done something that most people never do, and you've probably already taken your health. You know, I, I mean, again, unfortunately, even some of the people who come here and get amazing benefits go home and then don't follow up consistently making the best choices. You know, so by doing what you did and then making optimal choices, you are already experiencing a level of health and vitality. You look amazing. I haven't seen you now in a year. Um, you know, it's, it's incredible what happens for people. Can you take it to a higher level? Yeah, you almost certainly can. Well, you know, it takes most people. I forget, you're, you're around 30, right? Yeah, I'm 28 in two months. Two, okay, almost 28. So, um, you know, I, I mean, fortunately, you were smart enough to start early, and that helps a lot. Um, I mean, you're, you're a little bit younger than I was when I started fasting. Um, it's now been more than half my life. I've been, you know, living this lifestyle, which is amazing. It's, you know, it's why my body works better today at, at nearly 60 than it did at 18. Um, when I surfed, I was uh, surfed when I, when I was 18, 19, 20, I was a cadet at the U.S. Air Force Academy. And uh, we were up in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, and I love skiing. But I had to wear big braces on my knees because I have congenital knee defects and was told, you know, that you're always going to have to do this. I began, I, I've been body surfing since I was a little kid. I, again, I was a competitive swimmer. And so I, you know, I found uh, big waves um, fun and exciting when I was, you know, six, seven, eight years old. Uh, no one else would be in the ocean except me and my sister. Um, these giant waves after, after a hurricane or something. Um, and I've been body surfing ever since. But I finally, you know, started surfing the board a little bit, and I'm not really very good at it. But the action on my knees is pretty much the same as skiing, and yet I'm perfectly fine at 60 when I wasn't okay at 18 without braces. So it's it's amazing what happens, and I, you know, I'm so so grateful 
that um, I got as sick as I did at 20, at 23. And that at 26, I figured out what to do. And, um, you know, and I'm so, so grateful that I've been able to share this message. And I, I very much appreciate the invitation to be here with you because I love being able to share this with people who might have never heard this before, maybe not have heard the whole story or didn't understand it. And I mean, I, I understand completely, you know, there's a good chance that some of the people listening to this are going to go, that guy's crazy. <laughs> you know, he's a liar because this stuff can't be true. Um, but the fact is it is, you know, our, our amazing bodies were meant to function at an incredibly high level. And so I'm just as strong as I've ever been. You know, I still, I have six siblings that all wear glasses. My vision is better than 2020. Um, I, you know, I think I mentioned I had a full physical workup and everything works perfectly. And they said like a 35 year old. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't think it really ever has to change. Not significantly. How many days have you fasted total? I have now fasted um, roughly three and a half years of my life. <laughs> That's a lot. How many, a lot. how many 21 day fasts did you do, mate? Well, I've probably done 21 day fasts at least 10 or 12 times. Um, but I've also done a lot of shorter fasts. I mean, you know, these days when I have an injury, I mean, and some of these things are, it's incredible. It's, it's hard to imagine. Um, when I broke my hip. Now, I mean, honestly, that one was, I was kind of in a tough position. I needed to fly to the US. We had a session about to start two weeks later and I needed to get to a bank in the US before we opened because my next chance to travel is gonna be three months later. And I needed to, to make this happen before then. And so I wound up only fasting for seven or eight days. Um, that was a significant enough injury that I probably should have fasted for 21. But I, I didn't have time to do that. And so that injury took longer to heal than most of my other injuries have. But, you know, I've broken these other bones and I've been told it's going to take a while. And I mean, honestly, in three, four, five days, in some cases, there's no swelling, there's no discoloration, there's no pain. I feel perfectly fine and I'm back doing everything I normally do. Um, some of what you've spoken about really just outlines to me the infinite uh, potential and just wisdom that the body possesses, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I agree. It's just this miracle that we've been gifted to be able to control, you know, and. That, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, you, you started out by asking me how far we are from what's possible. And I think I'm, I'm explaining some of that here. I mean, by example, you know, the average person my age is taking medication has hypertension, has all kinds of problems. Um, that's not necessary. I, you know, I, I actually had a tight T-shirt on and decided to put on something a little nicer. And this shirt, I didn't realize how loose it was. But you know, I, what people might not be able to see with my shirt on is that I have a 29-inch waist and a nearly 42-inch chest, and I'm still I'm strong as hell, and I have very little body fat, and it doesn't take a lot of of time to maintain that. It's it's like you know, it's like a cat who can jump six feet and they don't have to do a bunch of squat thrusts to develop that. Um, they just maintain the strength by, busy, by being normally active. You know, I haven't been sick a single day in 34 years. I, I you know, I, I, I feel I have, I've never lost a day of work in 34 years. I've had no sick leave. I've, you know, I've no downtime. I've spent zero money on medication or vitamins or superfoods. None of that stuff is necessary. 
Um, it's all so simple if people were just willing to do what they need to do. That you know, the key is you've got to get the garbage out of the body. And this is why I decided after seeing such amazing benefits for myself. Well, and I was actually um, you know back when I started, I first walked away from the commercial real estate business not to run a fasting center, but to be a health coach. I just wanted to help other people. And I started doing that on the side. And then I thought, you know what, this is a lot more, you know, it, it feels much better to me than helping rich people make more money. I want to help people get their health back. And so uh, that's what I started doing. And what happened was I was fasting myself and my coaching clients knew that I was fasting. And they started saying, well, guide me through the process. And I was like, I, I'm not, I'm not an expert in this. I don't have, I don't, I'm not qualified to do that. Um, I wound up getting two years of training. Um, there's there's a, an organization called the International Association of Hygienic Practitioners. In order to qualify to get their training to become a certified fasting supervisor, you have to be a an MD, an osteopath, a chiropractor, or a naturopath, a licensed practitioner. And I'm not licensed. One of my mentors was actually from Sydney, Australia. Dr. Alec Burton was an amazing guy. He was a friend. I learned a lot from him as well as many others, but he was one of my mentors. And I said to Alec um, nearly 30 years ago, Alec, I want you to train me. And he said, I'd love to. I don't remember. We knew each other because we, I, I went to um, these five-day health retreats, uh, seminars, for several years in a row. And he was always there as one of the featured speakers. And he said, I don't remember, are you a, an MD or a chiropractor? He said, what? And he just assumed that because I was knowledgeable and intelligent, and, I, and we would have these conversations, he assumed I was a practitioner. I said, no, I, I'm not licensed. He said, oh. He said, I, I said, Lauren, I'd love to do this, but I, I, you know, the rules say I can only take you if you have one of these licenses. So what I wound up doing was I hired a licensed practitioner who was authorized to teach and they worked for me at Tanglewood for a year and then I let him go and hired another one. And so I had two years of hands-on training at my own center where they get six months of training. Well, I had two years of training. Um, I didn't actually fast my first client until I had already fasted nearly 40 times myself. And um, I started with people who were relatively well and didn't need to fast so long. And then, you know, as I got more experienced and more confident, I started fasting with people for longer periods of time and with more serious issues. And, and now for the last 20 plus years, Tanglewood has been the largest dedicated water-only fasting center in the world. And there are probably very few people alive today, if any. Uh, Alec Burton, unfortunately, is not alive my other uh, primary mentor, uh, William Esser, also died several years ago. They were both in their ni around 90. Or, uh, Esser was older than, than Alec Burton was. Um, these, all these old-timers are gone. Uh, there are probably very few people alive today who have as much experience as I do, even close to it. And so, um, but, you know, I, I looked around and saw what was available and thought, you know, I want to, help people find this and do it in a better way because most of the places you can go today are like true north in California. It feels more like a hospital than anything else. You know, it's, it's very clinical. And I, I thought, no, that's not, and there's, there's like, there's, there's a little bit of outdoor space, but you're, there are busy intersection in a city. Like that's not, that's not what this is about. You know, there's studies that show that people 
in conventional hospitals who just have a view of trees from their hospital room heal 30% faster than people who can't see trees. And, you know, I thought, no, this has got to be in nature, right? And so my first place was, was a, we were outside of Washington, D.C. in the suburbs on a relatively small lot. But everywhere you look, there were gardens. From every window, you're looking at beautiful gardens and trees. And I thought, this is what people need, is that we need to be connected to nature. And, of course, as you know now, we've kind of taken it to a new level. I mean, the place is it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. I was laughing earlier when you said um, there's lots of walking tracks. And I was just thinking, yeah, but after 10 days of not eating, you're not bloody walking. No, <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. It's, it's really, I mean, a lot of, you know, we have, we have a saltwater pool, we have a yoga studio, we have exercise bars. We're actually going to be building a gym probably next year. Um, we have mountain bikes for our guest use, and we have all these trails. And we have a big field where you can play a slack line. Uh, but these are all a big trampoline. All these things are there for people when they're refeeding, not while right. fasting. Yeah, yeah, 100%. You start um, to refeed and you start to get pretty energetic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just want to touch on quickly before we move on, um, you talk about being around nature. You know, it's a real, when you're around nature and when you're fasting, um, you, you're reminded about kind of who we are and where we came from, you know, and that we are all connected to nature you know we're all we're all connected to everything um exactly but it's no surprise to me that um people who can see trees from their hospital rooms heal better because when you're in and around nature you just brought back to earth maybe you're walking on the earth with no shoes on you're grounding and you just re you you reconnect with our connectedness right and that's um, that's right yeah you feel that ease uh, which is such a beautiful thing um you, you, you touched on there uh, just about all of those things are for people when they're refeeding. So what's the refeeding process like? Um, you know, there's a lot of people who um, run fasting facilities and, you know, when people refeed, it it's, uh, can be quite quick. Uh, they're doing enemas. They're doing a, a whole raft of different things. Uh, what's right. the process like for you and how do you kind of go about that? Yeah, uh, we, we definitely do this differently as we do. We do many things a little differently. Um, first of all, in many, many places, believe it or not, even sure north, there's a buffet and you help yourself. Um, I think the first day they're giving you just juices and, and maybe there's a limit. But after that, it's pretty much up to you what you eat and how much of it. And I've worked out for myself uh, many years ago, 20 years ago, what seemed to work best. And so we've been following the same protocol and it allows us to take people from zero up to um, you know, normal amounts of food over the course. I mean, how long it, it takes depends on how long the fast is. So when someone fasts 21 days here, they'll spend a week refeeding. If they fast 42 days, uh, twice as long, they spend three times as long refeeding. The refeeding becomes a larger percentage proportion of their total stay depending on how long the fast is. We have a guy who just came in today. He actually lives in San Jose, Costa Rica, most of the time, but has a home not too far from here. And he uh, called yesterday and said, I'm going to be in the area. Can I stop by? And he stopped by. He's fasted twice, and he registered for a, his third fast, a 42-day fast, starting in April here uh, today, and, and made that happen. Um, actually, it's funny. Yesterday, I heard from two other clients who also wanted to schedule their third fast with me. And many people are here, you know, two, three, four, five, actually have two people who've been here nine times 
and there's a woman in California who's fast with me online remotely. We, we never actually met in person until she had done 14 fasts with me. And I happened to be in her part of the country. And um, yeah, that's when we first met in person. But um, with the refeeding process, we, uh, we start people very gently, very gradually. Most people are breaking their fast, as you guys did. Uh, you, you did 30 days, right? Yeah. And that's a pretty long time. And it sounds crazy to most people, but the average person can do at least six weeks. And most people are between six and eight weeks somewhere. Um, and so what happens if you're breaking a fast, even at 30 days, you may be ready to eat. And you may need to get on a plane and get home to business. And, you know, you might be really looking forward to the watermelons and papayas here, but your body is usually not interested in eating at that point. It actually wants to keep cleansing and healing. And so we very gently, gradually bring people back with multiple tiny meals the first day, um, bigger the second day, bigger, you know, they go up every day. The meals become a little further apart and they go from five to four. Sometimes if someone's refeeding long enough, down to three, we have a couple of people now doing three meals um, while most people are eating four meals a day. And at first they're still resting most of the time. They still need to sip quite a bit of water. We didn't talk much about that. You know, I'll just um, maybe won't say too much about it, but sipping, if you've been watching me, over through this period, some people may just be listening. You know, I take little tiny sips. Um, I've, uh, on an average day like today, I have been speaking via Skype and or giving a lecture here or talking with clients. At the end of the day, somewhere between eight and 10 hours I'm speaking every day. Um, and I, you know, I don't mean like having a conversation. I'm, most of the time I'm actually doing a lot of the speaking. And that means... I wind up sipping water through the day, but it's, it's typically going to be one, maybe two glasses. I mean, some, some weeks I, when I was speaking less, I would drink less water. Uh, now it's just to, to lubricate my, you know, my throat a little bit, but I'm, you know, I'm probably drinking a couple liters a, a week, but the average person needs to drink three to four liters a day. And it's critically important that they sip the water. So we have clients continue doing that, and that takes quite a bit of time um, while having these periodic meals. The first couple of days, they're just resting. We have them starting around day three or four or five, depending on how long their feeding process is. With a week, which is the tip, the, the shortest we typically do. Most people are fasting at least 21 days here. And so the refeeding is usually at least seven. And on around day three, we have them start walking a little bit. And on around day four, we have them start um, introducing maybe some gentle calisthenics. And by day five, at the latest, I'm asking people to be doing some strength building exercises, whether it's push-ups or it's, it's pull-ups, dips, um, even jump, you know, we have a big trampoline, which is pretty intense. Uh, it's actually really good to develop. It's really yeah. difficult <laughs> getting on that. Track. Yeah, at first, especially. Um, but, you know, the, these are things that really help people rebuild their muscles. And as I mentioned earlier, it's amazing how quickly people that really, I mean, some people do the minimum. Those people who really go after it, it's incredible how, how quickly they'll rebuild their, their lost muscles and how strong they'll get. So, mm. And so I, if, talking from my experience, I actually found the refeeding was the most challenging in a way uh, because- It can be, yeah. Yeah, because you're passing out so much old material, right? And some of the bowel movements that I had in that first couple of weeks were the most abhorrent 
things I've ever had to see or smell <laughs> right. or experience. Exactly. Right? exactly. Yeah. Um, and as that, it fruit, can be painful and difficult, and sometimes can be really horrendous smelling. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and yeah, it can it can be quite challenging. But to me, actually, the um, the most challenging bit was coming back to the real world and sticking uh, with with fruit, you know, and um, sticking with that with that diet because you're back in the real world where everything else says that that's not right. You know, <laughs> that can be quite tough sometimes. Um, um, but yeah, so then once we're kind of out of uh, refeeding, um, we're, we're back home, um, what sort of fruits and things and like what quantities um, should one be eating for optimal health? Well, it's going to vary from person to person. Um, but generally speaking, I mean, first of all, Almost all fruits are fine. There are some fruits that are probably not optimal, a few, but um, those are things like, which most people may not even realize are fruits, things like eggplants and olives. Um, they're both very, very bitter in their natural state, and that should be telling us that we probably don't want to eat them. Um, we start people here with their choice the first day of papaya, watermelon, or fresh out of the coconut, coconut water. I wouldn't use bottled coconut water, even if it's not pasteurized, because it's oxidizing as soon as it leaves the, the coconut. Um, and in fact, I wouldn't use coconut, even coconuts, unless they're whole coconuts or have been kept refrigerated their entire journey. Unfortunately, most of the Thai coconuts that are shipped around the world are not kept cold enough to prevent them from going rancid. So when people work with me remotely, you know, if they're not in a tropical or subtropical location where they can get fresh coconuts, I encourage them to eliminate coconut water as an option. But we'll start people with melons and papayas and coconut water because they're all very easy to digest, very high in water content and, you know, pretty high in nutrients in most cases as well. Um, and then as the process proceeds, we start to incorporate, you know, introduce other things as well, at least options for people, including acid fruits like pineapples and oranges and tangerines, um, mangoes a little bit later because they're much lower in water content and most people are needing to rehydrate the body quite a bit. Um, things, uh, very sweet fruits, like some of the ones I mentioned earlier, the mame sapotes, the durians and jackfruits and even bananas are things I wouldn't recommend and we don't include in our feeding process unless someone's refeeding for 21 days after a long enough fast, they might start to get bananas. Um, I wouldn't give them durian or jackfruit. It's just a little too rich um, at that stage of the process. But, um, you know, how much they eat, I mean, I can, I can share with you what I do. And I, I think it's important to point out that having fasted many times and keeping a clean diet most of the time, my body's pretty efficient. And so I will eat, for instance, um, twice a day, most days, some days, once a day, I'll eat no more than about 1200 calories most days. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got a tiny frame, but I'm about 150 pounds and it's mostly muscle. And um, we use a bioimpedance device to measure body composition. And ours was a pretty sophisticated, you know, reasonably expensive one when we got it. And it tells me, that I should be eating just under 3,000 calories per day. And I don't eat a fraction of that. I mean, I do eat just a small fraction of that. Um, that's based on the efficiency of my body. I mean, what I really tell people to do is to eat when they're hungry and to eat until they're satisfied. And for most people, that might mean eating 
you know, three kilos of watermelon, which is, sounds like a lot when you look at the volume, or maybe eating, I think it was a year and a half ago, I was in Colorado where I've had some of the best peaches I've ever had in my life. I think I was there for a week and I probably had peaches for one of my meals five times, uh, five different days because they were just incredible. Um, and I would probably eat a dozen large peaches at one time. Um, you know, it's going to be a similar quantity of whatever the fruit is. Oranges, you know, it's if they're pretty big oranges, it'll probably be at least eight of them um, in order to just feel satisfied. If I'm eating apples, it's going to be, you know, probably at least eight of them, something like that. Maybe less if they're super, super big. I'll eat a couple of papayas this size. I'll eat one pineapple. Um, that's usually enough for me. Um, a couple of cantaloupes. You know, those, those are all sort of tip, you know, mangoes. If they're large ones, I might eat three. If they're smaller ones, I might eat six or eight of them. Mm. And um, explain what um, mono meals are. Sure. A mono meal is, is uh, simply means that we're eating only one type of fruit at a time. I mean, uh, for, so for fruit meals, I recommend eating mono. Um, I do eat green salads. And that, you know, the green salads, my green salads are typically going to be lettuce, tomato, cucumber, um, maybe some red pepper, not always, um, almost always some avocado, and maybe one other ingredient. I hear we have a lot of fruits that aren't very sweet, um, like starfruit, which I love, delicious, um, interesting flavor, but it's not something I'd want to make a meal of, but sliced up in a salad, it's, it's amazing, it's perfect. Um, what some people call ground cherries, um, another sort of sunny acidic fruit, I'll put that in the salad as well. Um, you know, one day it's a, a, a star fruit and one day it's a ground cherry, a bunch of them. Um, but, you know, they're, they're typically fairly simple, you know, four or five, six ingredients max. But with fruits, it's usually one fruit at a time. And the reason to do that is because every single thing we eat requires a slightly different environment in the stomach for optimal digestion. So if we eat one thing at a time, we digest as well as possible. And this is one of the things that allows us, the body, to be as efficient as possible. Now, by efficiency, what I mean is we require the fewest number of calories to do whatever the amount of work is. That's obviously ideal because processing food takes more energy than anything else the body normally does. And so if we can reduce, you know, one thing that's clear, there's, there's lots of disagreement among people interested in longevity, like the experts, about what the optimal diet is or what supplements, if any, we should take. I say none, other people say you need some. But what everybody agrees on is that the fewer calories we eat, I mean, obviously, there's, you need to get the minimum to meet your body's needs. But that, you know, generally speaking, uh, caloric restriction, eating fewer calories means people live longer. Every species lives longer. With animals, if you, you know, with most species, if you restrict their caloric intake by 50%, they'll live 50% longer than the average member of their species. And there's no reason to believe we can't do exactly the same thing. Um, I'm hoping that this has uh, been, uh, well, certainly for me, it's been beautiful conversation talking about the, the real stuff right <laughs> healing this body we've been gifted um you know i would do this for you alex even if you weren't paying me the big bucks to be here I'd still <laughs> look the check's in the mail mate um it'll arrive excellent <laughs> right 
<laughs> I've heard that before. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I honestly, if, you know, if there were enough people interested and I had nothing else going on in life, which isn't the case, I'd be happy to do a podcast every single day because I love talking about this stuff and I'm happy to share this information. And, you know, I mean, if, if there are people listening who don't resonate with me for some reason, that's fine. Find someone you trust that has a lot of experience and do a supervised fast because it's, it's the single most powerful and empowering thing you can do for yourself. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, and, you know, even just eating more fruits, you know, um, just yeah. eating some, <laughs> more hydrating yeah. fruits and simple salads. Um, you know, we've been having a few uh, friends and family coming up and staying with us. And every single person who's stayed here has left saying, I feel lighter than when I arrived. You yeah. Know? I feel calmer. You know, and um, you know, if I could have everyone come and and um, and live here for a few days, I would. Um, but it's yeah. because hey, they're eating fruits, they're getting sunshine, they're drinking some water. I I, I know it's amazing. My my mother and sister, one of my sisters, I have a couple of sisters that won't you know won't come visit because they're like, what am I going to do? Live on fruit for a week? I'm like, well, you wouldn't hurt you. <laughs> but I have I have one sister, sister I'm closest to. Um, she visits every year with my mother. They come together. And you know, my, my sister is now 63. Uh, my mother is uh, 86, coming up on 87. And um, they visit every year. This, this, unfortunately, this last year, there was no travel. And they're both afraid to travel right now. But, um, no, I'm not going to see them this, again this year. But they've been here every year since I've been down here now. And the same thing happens. They come and stay for a week, 10 days, sometimes two weeks, they leave having lost excess body fat, feeling more energized, feeling better, feeling calmer, feeling clearer, happier than when they got here. And this happens every single year. And then they go home and go back to whatever they were doing before. <laughs> well, fruits can't, can't heal, right? Um, it can't be no. the only thing. Um, exactly. If people want to find out more about you, or actually, first of all, um, t- tell us a little bit more about um, your at-home fasting that you're kind of launching now and how they can get involved with that. Right. Well, let, let me say, first of all, this isn't new, but I've been doing remote fasting now for 13-plus uh, years and, in fact, have, I think, never gone a day without speaking with a client remotely. Um, but we went, you know, in when... In March of last year, when the government of Costa Rica decided they needed to close the borders um, and we no one could get here, I thought, we're going to have to do something or we're not going to be around. We had big, you know, we have big mortgages to pay and we have all kinds of, of you know, running a business. We have, This is a bricks and mortar business. We normally have 15 to 20 employees. We have taxes and insurance, all these things that don't instantly change because no one can get here. Uh, these are mostly fixed costs. And so one of the things that I started doing was letting people know in my, my uh, weekly broadcasts that remote fasting was still available to them. Uh, and I used to limit myself to only five people at a time, but I started working with up to 15 at a time. And, uh, um, and I thought, you know, as I thought about this, I thought, you know, I've been doing the same thing now for 13 years. Uh, and people, most people really enjoy the process, get a lot out of the process. Again, we have a lot of people that I fast numerous times this way. Um, but I thought we could make this even better. 
And so instead of just getting a call with me every day, uh, now they're all group calls, which is interesting. It, it actually works really well for people because you know, when you were here, you had a community of like-minded people around you. When I've worked with people in the past, I mean, the, the original, the first nine years, um, every call was an individual call. It was me and the client for half an hour, but they were isolated and they didn't have that community. They didn't have any support. Um, they really felt on their own. I mean, maybe they had someone at home often who didn't really understand what's happening. Uh, that's not even you know, necessarily a positive thing, having that person around. But we started doing groups and even the people I'm working with a woman right now, this is her. She actually spent seven months at Tanglewood many years ago helping me out. And I've, I've known her for more than 20 years and she's fast with me various times. But I think this is her fourth or fifth, maybe even sixth fast with me remotely. And it was a couple of years ago, she had broken her arm, her shoulder in a fall in the winter in, in her city. And she wrote to me and said, I broke my arm. I know fasting is what to do. I want to start fasting right away. I want you to guide me. Can you do that? And I said, yes, I can. Uh, I'm not doing individual calls anymore. I'm only doing group calls. I don't have time to do individual calls. And so she said, oh, well, I really want you one-on-one -on -one with you, but I'll do it if that's all that's available. And a week later, we started the next day because she, you know, she had a broken arm. And um, a week later, she wrote to me and said, I love the calls. She's now doing her fourth group uh, Skype fast with me where she's in a group um, I think it's the third or fourth one anyway I mean so it's a group there's been these daily calls but I wanted to provide even more support and so our new program and we you know we're still doing the same thing but we're just making it better same price um, what we're doing is every day there's a group call once a week there's going to be a live zoom call we're just rolling this out now there's going to be a live zoom call I think it's going to be an hour and it's just going to be for people who are fasting with me at the time remotely because again you know i do i do live uh youtube broadcasts twice a week now once in english and once in spanish and we may have 100 plus people on those calls it's going to be hard for me to answer everyone's questions but these are going to be calls just for people fasting with me and the idea is to give them more information and to give them even more information we built a system first of all it's more automated so you can you can register you can book your own time slot on a calendar. Um, you can pay. We immediately get, uh, as soon as you pay, it triggers an email sent to you with a video, which explains the process. And then the next day you get another one. And then just before you start, you get another one. And then every day of your process, you get an, an email from me, a pre-written email, which, which it depends on how long your process is. And we try to figure out when people would need this or that. And there's still time to talk to me every single day to answer, ask questions, but we're trying to, to um, give you as much of the information as we can up front. So as the process goes along, you know, before, maybe before you meet, you're getting a written email from me and a video every single day that explains some aspect of the process and gives you some, some important information. So this is just about to launch. Um, probably in the next week or so. We're still working on a couple of details. And uh, we still charge $500 a week for US dollars for working with me remotely. And you know, some people think that's a lot of money. And I understand for some people it may be a lot of money. Um, you know, I firmly believe a couple of things. A, 
that we can create anything we choose to. And so when someone says, I can't do that, I think what they mean is, it's not important enough for me to figure out how to make that happen yet. Um, but we also offer payment plans with, with remote fasting. You know, when someone comes here, we have a lot of expenses to run this place. Um, we, you know, on the ongoing maintenance of the grounds, the trails, the gardens, the buildings, we have many buildings here. We now house 34 guests and um, it costs a lot of money to run this place. And so we do require people to pay up front when they come here. But with remote fasting, and people can make, you know, can make a down payment and then make a payment plan. They may pay a little bit more that way, but it gives, you know, makes it much more feasible for people. So that's, that's a very cool new thing, which is just about to launch, just about to get started. We also have the Academy for Vibrant Living. This is something I have wanted to do for years and was too busy to do. I finally asked a client of mine who was a you know, brilliant young student of mine, also a health coach, um, who got this stuff and he had fasted with me. And I said, look, I want you and your wife to come here from Argentina and um, I will house and feed you. And you're going to build this course for me. It's going to be all my information. You're going to build, put it all together. You're going to shoot me um, teaching it. And we shot 175 videos wow. for the first course. And uh, we did this over the course of about three months. It was pretty busy. Um, and, you know, he's put the whole thing together. And he's also, we're about to launch a Spanish version of the course as well. We launched the course like three weeks ago. And we're about to launch, launch a Spanish version, which he's, he's recording all those videos. Because although I speak Spanish, he speaks it a little bit better than I do. Um, and the course is amazing. We're getting amazing feedback from people. We have already uh, some roughly 50 people enrolled in the first couple weeks. And they're loving it. Uh, we're also, the, the next course, we're just about to start recording videos for. That's the health coaching course. It will be a certified, you'll be able to become a certified health coach, um, teaching the very same things that I've been teaching and practicing. And I've taught to more than 13,000 clients over the years. And um, that's also, we're, we're actually offering it now in conjunction with the first course. You can buy the whole thing as a, as a, as a package. Um, but you have to take the first course before you can take the second one. So our first students are probably still two months away from being ready, and the course will be ready by then. Um, we have everything outlined. We just have to record the videos now. So that's about to get started. Um, so uh, in terms of how to reach me, you can you probably, the, you know, the first place to start might be tanglewoodwellnesscenter.com. You can go there. Uh, there will be a link, but you can also go directly to the Academy, uh, Academy for Vibrant Living.com. I'd love to share with people, if it's okay, a couple of more uh, touch points. We have the Las Cascadas uh, project, which I know you're aware of. Um, in fact, I don't know if, I, if you know the big news, but this is a project I've been working on. I mean, I've been visioning this thing for like 30 years. And when I moved here to this site, eight, rough, I think it was eight, I think it was eight, not nine years ago, but I may be wrong. I quickly discovered that there was a waterfall nearby. I did not know at the time that it's the highest waterfall in Central America and that 75 meters away that there's the second highest waterfall in Central America. And I started negotiating. It took me five years to, to get a contract. We, um, last week, we bought the property. It's 165 hectares. 
And we've got these two amazing waterfalls. And the idea is the first piece and what, you know, it's um, 165 hectares and what could be a 1,500 to 2,000 hectare nature preserve. We already have 16 or 17 other properties under contract. And we have one that we've acquired to have title to that won't be the nature preserve across the street. It's going to be an intentional raw vegan fruitarian community that we're creating there. Um, we have actually several contiguous parcels on that side of the road, one which will be a world-class botanical garden. We have three, uh, which are just above the falls, which will be a permaculture-based organic fruit farm where the intention is to create the largest collection of tropical fruit species in the world. And it, we may, you know, we may fail. That's a big, that's a big goal. But if we have the first or second largest collection in the Western hemisphere, it's still going to be a pretty rocking thing. And I think, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fruit. And, you know, the intention, what we're trying to do with this project, first of all, I want people to understand we set up a U.S.-based 501c3 nonprofit, um, which will own all of the land except the community. The community is going to be owned by the community members. You'll own your lot. All the rest of the land is owned by the community association, which every member is a part of, uh, owns a part of. But all the rest of the land is owned by a nonprofit. It's not for my personal enrichment. It's to create something that preserves the land and gives people an amazing experience of being connected with nature because we're in deep trouble. Um, we are destroying the planet. We're in the sixth mass, mass extinction. And at the rate we're going, some scientists believe that in 40 years, there will be no wild species left, no animals left on the planet. And I think we need to do something to turn that around as quickly as possible. And so... My thought was, if we can create this incredible place, I mean, not only do we have these two waterfalls I mentioned, we have about 14 more waterfalls. So if we can create this amazing experience where people can see, you know, amazingly beautiful nature, um, it's almost a perfect climate here. We'll have this, you know, this amazing experience with learning about what real food is and giving people an experience of that because we're going to have this big organic market where they can buy all the things we're growing. We're also going to have raw vegan eateries and it, it's not optimal it's not what i recommend but this is for tourists so we'll have an ice cream shop and a chocolate shop and we'll have restaurants that offer different raw vegan dishes and all kind you know you can get a simple salad or you can get something much more elaborate if that's what you want uh, have raw vegan chefs that are chopping at the bit to get down here and run their place once we can make all this happen um some very, very cool things going on with that. So we have, we have a website, lascascadas.org. Um, and then for anyone who would, you know, if, if you're liking anything you're hearing here and you'd like to contribute directly, we also have a GoFundMe campaign because we need to raise capital to make all this happen. Um, I've taken every asset I had and almost every asset I had and liquidated it to raise the capital to do what we've done so far. Um, I've got hundreds of thousands of dollars invested and I have nothing else. There's, there's, that's it, I'm, I'm dry. That's all there was. Um, everything that any net profit from the center and um, my portion of the Academy for Vibrant Living, because Fran who put this together is a partner in that enterprise. Uh, but my portion, everything is going into this project as well. Uh, but we have a GoFundMe. And it's GoFundMe slash Lauren Lockman, my name, uh, if anyone's you know willing to contribute to help make this a reality. 
they, we'd appreciate that very much. Beautiful, mate. Of course, then there's YouTube, right? I have a YouTube channel, by the way, where there's 700 plus videos. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's a very, very valuable resource. Uh, I, uh, well, first of all, the, the waterfalls you're talking about are absolutely beautiful. Um, yeah. I was actually astounded at your physical ability when we went there and we were like two weeks after fasting and could barely walk up a hill and <laughs> you were bouncing around um, nice and limber. Um, but yeah, your YouTube videos are a great asset for anyone wanting to learn a bit more about some of the things that we've been talking about today. Um, right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I remember once I had you up on the big screen at home and um, Kristen walked in and said, what are you watching? You know, and there's you on the screen talking about only eating raw foods. And at that time, that was pretty radical for us. Um, right. Yeah, sure. But uh, how time flies. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you're just on a, uh, a beautiful mission um, to save the planet and save uh, humans, you know, and one thing I know to be true is um, through fasting, our world changes. I've seen that personally. I've seen that in friends, uh, my partner. I've seen that in others. And it's a beautiful, profound thing. And I hope that some of what we've spoken about today has helped show people that it's possible, it works, it's okay <laughs> if it's hard. Uh, and um, it's something that's built into us. You know, Our bodies know what to do. It's just we get in the way with our own minds. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think it's important to point something out, Alex, and something that didn't come up yet at all in this long conversation, and that is that um, fasting is a completely natural process. And yet, it's something that most of us, you know, we've had no exposure to, we've had no experience with it and uh, growing up. And so, it is something that virtually every expert over the last 100 plus years has said, you should only do with experience guidance. And I would say the same thing. And again, I mean, listen, you know, your, your job is to go find guidance that feels comfortable to you. Uh, there are potential risks involved, but in virtually every case, those risks are much, much lower than the risk of not doing this because 80% wind up dying of cancer, heart disease, or stroke. And this happens as a result of lifestyle choices. And even by optimizing diet, I mean, you know, one of the things that's kind of amazing is we'll take people who have been 20 plus years eating optimally and take them through a 21-day fast and they leave here blown away by how changed they are by what happens. You know, it's, it's just amazing what happens for people when people have the chance to truly get their body clean and, and uh, well-functioning. And so um, I, would, I, would, you know, I want people to understand um, you know, there, there can be some challenges that arise, but it's rare. And you don't want to worry about that. You need to understand that if you can follow simple directions, the odds of that happening are really, really tiny. Um, what we see over and over again is people having amazing results and getting amazing benefits. Yeah, and, you know, I, I talk often about my upbringing where I, um, I was seeing sick people all the time, you know. Mum and dad were running this business and sick people were coming in to use sauna. Um, and right. it was very clear to me that if I kept making the wrong choices, um, I was going to end up like those people. And, yeah. um, you know, although it may be hard to fast or can seem somewhat expensive, um, the costs of not looking after ourselves, um, yeah. they, they can be massive. 
right? Um, emotionally, physically, um, you know, my dad was recently put into a, a home uh, for Alzheimer's because he never looked after himself well. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, and, but, you know, it's a, it was really sad and it's a really good lesson around, like, the effect that, that has not on him. I mean, we don't even know what's going on in his mind, but the whole family, you know, and, um, it's the same thing. Maybe Alzheimer's, maybe it's cancer, maybe it's heart disease. You know, all these things have a real ripple effect. And when we, exactly, uh, you know, when we fast, we, we heal and uh, spoke about it a little bit earlier, you know, it may cost some money to do, but when we actually honor this body that we've been gifted, the universe looks after us, you know, it's like things just happen easier and for you. And maybe that's because the perception changes or maybe that's just because how it is, you know, it's almost like, Hey, you, you've been, looking after your body and your health uh, and your spirit. So, you know, here you go. Here's, here's all of life's pleasures. Well, as, as you know, I mean, I, I truly believe that we're part of the divine creative energy of the universe, that we are creating everything that shows up in life. And what we, we create, what we focus on with emotion. So if when, you know, when we are going through life with a positive frame of mind, um, you know, feeling like there are no limits, that's the way life shows up for us. Absolutely. Lauren, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you. My pleasure. Oh, it's glad to be here with you. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes.